Welcome to Fandom Power. Hey, welcome back to Fandom Power and our ongoing series on season two of The Mandalorian. This week, it's uh, week three. So what are we looking at here? Chapter 11, The Heiress. And oh my God, there is a lot to consume today. So I'm not going to waste any time. I'm going to get right back into it. Once again, I'm here with producer Andy and friend of the show, Hank. Gentlemen, what did we think of The Heiress? Not bad oh at god, all. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> I felt very much the same. Uh, you were saying like a couple shows ago that you could gauge the thing by how you were smiling. Yeah. And I was like a Cheshire cat. It was like, again, I, I watch it like 4 a.m. my time. Uh, yeah. Just to be on the cutting edge. And um, dude, it was it's hard not to wake the neighbors at 4 a.m. When, when there's something like that going on. As we were coming down to the studio today, I turned to Andy and I said, listen, um, I know we've talked about the whole like my note taking style and is it the detractor from the show format? And <laughs> once again, I'm like, how is it that the shortest episode of the series has generated the most note taking that I've ever done? <laughs> no, it's certainly I, I, I never wrote this much in high school. If I did, I would have done far better. <laughs> yeah. But they jam so much in this week. Yeah, there is a lot deep. of there's. There's a lot of nuanced, uh, subtle stuff, story stuff, yeah. acting stuff, uh, just physicality to character. There's so much packed into this. Lots of lore. So for uh, for our listeners, uh, for you Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels fans, you know, um, you know where, where this is going. But um, for the casual listener, we're going to touch on some of that lore stuff that you might not be up to speed on. So uh, let's kick this one off. Um, the Heiress, it's again written by Jon Favreau. This time around, directed by uh, Bryce Dallas Howard. So I think this is her uh, second episode in this, of the series. Total runtime, 35 minutes and 22 seconds. And that includes the recap. So I think if you if you knock that out, we're, we're closer to about 32 minutes, I think. And uh, yeah. just a brief episode synopsis this time. It's a one-liner. The Mandalorian braves high seas and meets unexpected allies. So... Yeah, what a what an interesting episode. We have this uh, opening scene, and it's uh, we talked about this last week about, is this the scene from the trailer? And I'm pretty sure that the opening scene of this episode is the trailer shot of the Razorcrest limping, limping past Kaliban uh, on its way into, into Trask. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Din the Child and Frog Lady are sleeping in the cockpit, and once again they are raised by an alarm. And... Uh, and this week's edition of Did You Get the Orbesh? What do you got? <laughs> Anything? <laughs> no, uh, you got me this time. Okay. I'm going to quit my day job. You keep screwing around. Oh, like my that. God. You know what, though? <laughs> so I'm going to just to go on a side here about the Orbesh. Like, there is so much in there in this episode that I, I just couldn't get it all because uh, the resolution, yeah. even on a 4K TV, the resolution on a lot of it is still so. Either the, the script is so small or the, the resolution just isn't there that I can only get the largest fonts. So uh, this time we get, uh, we get a, a message saying a stabilizer error. And uh, yeah, it, it becomes this uh, sort of tense moment where, uh, you know, you're anticipating the landing or I guess in this case, 
a controlled crash. <laughs> yeah, and it's cool for the first time you get to see, you know, they never really delve into the science. But so no. you get to see that there's a piece of tech here at work on every starship that calculates the perfect entry into a planet. Because we see Luke flying to Dagobah. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. Han Solo fly, you know, through the clouds of Bespin to the Cloud City. We, we see a lot of ships approach planets without burning up. But there is a precedent, though, in Revenge of the Sith when the uh, Grievous' ship is crashing and Anakin's Oh, right, right. So there is a precedent for that, but it's it's neat to, for them to like cite a piece of tech. Yeah, uh, he refers to it as the landing array. The landing yes, array yeah. isn't responding. Yes. Which means it's going to be a manual reentry. So, I mean, seeing the, the Razor Crest, and I'm wondering, I'm like, oh my God, seeing all of the flappery and the, the, the flim flam flotsam and jetsam just hanging off the ship. I'm like, it's going to, it's going to rip apart. <laughs> I'm reminded more and more every episode of, of how much the crest is like the Falcon in terms of uh, its uh, character. Oh yeah. It's very quickly becoming it's, it is its own character. Absolutely. So yeah, we, we get this, uh, the re-entry, the burn shot where, I mean, you, you can't see through the uh, the heat and the fire coming off. And I think he makes a comment about having just enough fuel uh, once they break the atmosphere to slow their descent and uh, stick the landing, as it were. And that's a cool thing. It leads back to Solo, the Solo film, the idea that fuel is a limited resource and is, is sort of coveted in the galactic society. I have to say, I like that aspect of it because so do I. They never touched on it yeah. in the original trilogy. Like blasters are limitless, jetpacks are limitless, ships can go anywhere, and it's kind of new. Like like scarcity is nice. It, it creates. I mean, in the reason intention. In terms of the old role playing games, they always there was that uh, stat block on every starship that was just lumped under consumables, and I suppose fuel kind of falls into that. But I never really associated it until now. No, exactly. I always thought of it as like, you know, food and, and like other consumables. Yeah. You know, toilet paper or whatever. Certainly. <laughs> Essentials. Yeah. So we get a, we get treated to another, uh, another little blurb of, uh, Orabesh. And, uh, this one is kind of a, of a bit of a head scratcher because, uh, it says landing gear offline. Um, but that turns out to be only half true because in the landing itself, the landing gear actually do deploy, but. There's a, there's a few other things going on here, and one of them is uh, there's this vector diagram of the planet with a hexagonal landing indicator where the landing zone is. And it, I was doing a little bit of reading uh, prior to the show, and uh, <laughs> some of these other entertainment outlets really are stretching at what I think, you know, what they're calling an Easter egg. But uh, one entertainment outlet referred to that as an Easter egg referring to the Death Star because of the vector, uh, the vector graphic with the, because it was a circle with a circle. in the, it. Yeah. The hex kind of indicated the, the dish. I also know a lot of these other, uh, formats and I've been frequenting them lately just, yeah. to, you know, just to check it out. Um, they're taking their time. They're spreading information out over the week and just dropping like a, a three second. Blow. Oh, I noticed that this guy had a yeah. red shirt on. Yeah. It's funny. It's funny since the last, our last episode, you know, as we've, we've communicated sort of outside of the confines of the show to each other. And it's like, Oh, look, they finally talked about that thing we mentioned last week. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it's a lot to digest all at once, but at the same time, I kind of feel 
you know, it's kind of cool being on the leading edge of sort of breaking the news, right? Even if it is only a half a dozen people listening. Exactly, exactly. And I, I know I know the fans appreciate it. Something interesting that I want to talk about from that scene as well, looking at the console, is that on the left-hand side of the display, there's an indicator of what I interpret to be planets. And I say that because the icons, one of them looks like it has rings around it, but mm-hmm. they're abbreviated. And the abbreviations are, I don't know... The abbreviations don't really make any sense to me because the the planet that is indicated, which we know is Trask, that's where they're going, is actually abbreviated SC. So it doesn't really make any sense to me. But the other ones from, from the top down, so it's MC at the top, SC, DC, and then the, the fourth one at the bottom is GRC. And initially in my head, I'm like, oh, MC, I wonder if that's a, you know, is that a reference to you know, uh, Mon Calamari being that Trask is a, a water, a watery planet, but I don't, I don't think so unless they're retconning the system and that, you know, Kaliban and, uh, Mon Calamari now exist within the same system, but I don't think so. I think it's a far stretch. You know, I, I don't, yeah, it might be a far stretch. I, I think that it's, it's indicative of the, um, the way the empire really went roughshod on Mon Cal. Yeah. Just after, after the Galactic Civil War, the, uh, in the uh, novel literature, they they light up Mon Cal on the way to do Jakku, right? Essentially trying to destroy the 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 shipyards and things. So it might be deeper story about how the Mon Cal have had and the Quarren, same planet, right? Right. Have had to relocate vast parts of their society to safer places, I guess. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second, and let's go back into some of that deeper Star Wars lore and uh, previous visual outings with both the Mon Calamari and the Quarren. You didn't get that sort of from Return of the Jedi because I don't think we really saw them. I mean, the Quarren was a single alien in Jabba's palace, and the only you know the Mon Calamari were you know outside of Admiral Akbar. We didn't really see many of them in the original trilogy, so. They're described in the D6 game literature as uh, as like uh, shipbuilders. The Mon Calamari, very much, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. Like, and they 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 used to do civilian contracts for like pleasure right. cruisers, and so all the re- re- rebel frigates are converted like pl- pleasure ships. I was thinking more along the lines of even in uh, Clone Wars, where there's that episode. Uh, I think it's a it's a it's a multi part arc with uh, Lee Char. Mm-hmm. And Lee Char uh, as the budding uh, prince, king, king of the whatever. King, yeah. yeah. But they they pose the Mon Calamari and the Quarren as enemies. They do. You get a Gungan uh, Naboo feel. Yeah, almost. Yeah, a tentative alliance. And they might have been shooting for some sort of uh, Aquaman, Namor, Atlantis kind of vibe. Just, you know, just yeah. for, for adventure's sake. I just think in the in light of the the Disney canon, it's a sharp contrast to what we see on Trask, where on the on what I, I've been referring to as the dockyard, we see Mon Calamari and, and Quarren going about their their business without any you know any trouble at all. So yeah, it's got to be about money too, because we when we see those guys in Clone Wars, uh, everybody lives underwater. Yeah, everybody here is on a dock, dry dock. Plenty That's right. Yeah. Too, yeah. Or, they're called basics <laughs> and so this is about making money this is a black market after all they oh yeah touch on that later in the episode which yeah. part is that uh the whole trask being a very oh yes black market yeah place. that's right that's right so i mean clearly the financial thing it, it plays a role here yeah. but it 
apparently is a little more nefarious than we're initially led to believe. I, I love the comedic beat where the engine misfires at the very last second before like the glorious oh, yeah. touchdown, the hero landing. Yes. And dump, dumps them into the ocean. It's great. You have this controller, this, you know, ambiguous voice, the controller who just calm as anything, just keeps telling him, you need to slow down. You need to slow down. And then he's like, I'm doing the best I can here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Flips them off, right? He takes his hand off the control to turn the thing off. Yeah, yeah. That's a really haunt solo thing to do. But you're thinking, oh my God, they're going to thunder in. And we were, we talked about this before about having that, that pucker factor where like you felt like they were actually going to lose the crest. Yeah. I really yeah. felt like they were going to lose it this time. And I'm like, oh, they're going to lose it. And then the retro thrusters fire. I'm like, oh, okay. No, they're not going to. And then boom, <laughs> the, uh, the engine Great. goes out and bloop. Yeah, it is. It is like a double misdirection, you know? Oh, big time. Yeah. And did you catch the little, uh, little bit of uh, Star Wars cursing he drops in Oh there. my God, another dank ferric. Yep. <laughs> yeah, twice in this episode, actually. Yeah, so ever since you brought that up, it's become more and more prevalent, and it really is, it's in my brain now that, yeah, it it's like a, edge, yeah. So there's an interesting, to me, I find this, without having to do anything, so my favorite side character of the entire episode is the Mon Calamari dock worker who just stands there, hands on his hips, completely unfazed in his green cable knit sweater and chest waders and just watches the whole thing unfolding. No, it's true. He even puts his hands on his hips and then looks up as the thing's crashing yep. down. And nobody's running. Nope. No, nobody's panicking or anything. This thing is streaking out of the sky. It could be a comet. Exactly. Like, does this thing, does this kind of stuff happen every day around here? It seems like it does. <laughs> so I, I, I made a note. I'm like, um, meanwhile, Amon Calamari dressed up in his, uh, in hip waders and a cable knit sweater <laughs> looking like a Boston whaler or a longshoreman stands unfazed watching the entire crash unfold. <laughs> and I, after you said that, I looked at, and I was like, that's, that's a fantastic sweater. They oh just, my like, God. They brought their uncle's sweater. And then yeah. I started looking at all the other characters and there's yeah. guys with, with beanies on. And yes. Like, and there's all kinds of sweaters and it's the, it's, it looks, and uh bartender, the, the Mon Cal bartender even calls Mandalorian buddy. Oh yeah. Very East coast feel to it. Actually. Hey buddy. <laughs> yeah. Hey buddy. It's pretty great. So then, uh, the razor crest unceremoniously flips into the water and we're, uh, hit with the title cards. And then we get this like really awesome kind of, it's what, again, going back to comics, this big splash page of the, uh, the razor crest getting hauled out of the water by this, uh, mobile landing, uh, loading gantry. And it's this like, it's like literally a, a crane on an AT-AT body. <laughs> I found a concept art from Solo. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, very similar to, to the Karelian uh, cargo walker. So Doug Chang is like really prevalent in a lot of the production design. And I'm, I kind of wonder if that's one of his. Oh, yeah, almost certainly. Uh, but yeah, so the, this huge... The mobile landing gantry, which I'm like, well, that is like the, if that's not the coolest non-military usage of that, uh, technology. And, and I, I wondered like as a kid, right. When you see the, the, the ad ads on Hoth and you're thinking, oh, that's, that's really cool. And you just, you buy into it because it's cool. But yes. as an adult, I'm like. Super not practical. Why, what, why the, the change, like when you have repulsor, uh, technology and the ability to hover and fly, 
what what usage is there to move away from that to something that is on legs? Tarkin talks about it in the novel, I think. Not sure. specifically the walkers, but about their whole image being about striking fear. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it could be something about like this low, slumbering thing is coming to get you and there's not a lot you can do about it. So it kind of poses the question with the uh the loading gantry, is that is that a purpose built machine or is that a repurposed piece of leftover yeah. empire tech? Yeah. That's a good point regarding the timeline. I think I that know. we see them in solo on Corellia, so I think that they might be a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they drop, literally drop the Razor Crest with uh, Frog Lady, Din, and the child still in the cockpit kaboom, onto the deck. With a thud. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, again, the hard to tell. I mean, that looks so practical. Like, it just looks real, like. The landing struts taking the impact and it just kind of rocking there and then the water sloshing out of it. I'm like, for something that's made on a television budget, I I don't think I've seen I'm I mean I don't I don't say this facetiously. I genuinely mean this. I don't think I've ever seen higher production values in a TV show ever. It's it's crazy good. I'd be interested in seeing the numbers. I don't know if they're available, but it's crazy good. The episode think- cost? <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's brought way down by this technology they've invented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking about the Razor Crest and how, you know, it's its own character and, you know, you think that they're going to lose it and you really get a sense of, like, how bad it is when it's sitting there on the dock and you can see through it. Clear through it. I know. It's yeah, there. I'm like, oh, my Lord. <laughs> it's in rough shape. So they debark the ship and Longshoreman is just kind of standing there like, uh-huh. And uh, Din is like, basically hands him a handful of money and, and says, do what you can. Uh, or he says, can uh, can you fix it? And he's like, fix it? Nope. But I can make it fly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. It if it'll hold it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'll fuel it up if it still holds fuel. <laughs> so good. Yeah, and then I get this sense of the uh, the the dockyard itself. I guess I keep saying dockyard, but really those aerial shots we see, it's more like a small town, if not a or a, a big town or even a small city, you know. But Port. I, I never. It's hard to see whether it's connected to land or or right. isolated floating there, but it, it's certainly yeah. Well, the loading gantry is standing in shallow enough water that I get the impression that it's it's standing on the bottom. So, because initially I'm like, is it a floating, like, is it a floating structure or is it, have to is look it at on when land? He's burning up in the atmosphere. I'd have to look at that again, his approach, because we yeah. a big overview of it. I didn't catch it. Yeah, I don't know. But it's still, it looks very cool. Almost like, um, at certain, certain angles and certain scenes, I got like a water world vibe off of it. The big floating city in water yeah. world. Um, totally. but, but then in other, um. In other sequences, I'm like, no, it still looks very much like a, you know, well, I mean, you live in Halifax, you've, you've been past the dockyard, you know what it looks like, you know, on a, on a dreary drab day, right? I'm like, yep, that, that looks authentic. (laughs) Totally looks authentic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're reminded uh, that this isn't just that the the Mandalorian itself as an entity is, is, is a Star Wars show because this episode doesn't feel at all like a Western. No. It certainly feels like a Star Wars you know, like, so there's many different aspects that they're drawing from. You know, oh, it's, absolutely. And leaning heavily on the, on the Western motifs, but this has got a, you know, we're inside Imperial ships and stuff. And yeah. I got this, 
there was almost like going back to uh, the the menagerie of characters that are just milling about on the dockyard, like in the the various uh, costuming choices. And there's a there's one Quarren walking around with a uh, waist cut, almost like a like an oilskin coat, and it's kind of flared out. And he's got this I don't know what the style of hat is called, but it looks very it looks like a pirate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like so that, maybe that uh, Pirates of the Caribbean character. Was you know, it's funny that you say that because I had that sort of impression too. Like a little bit later on, yeah, it's a very heavy influence. Yeah, the Pirates influence, sure, and especially when you know you look at Davy Jones yep. and his uh, mm-hmm. tentacled tentacled face. But um, one thing I really notice on the you know in this opening sequence, sort of hitting the dockyard, is like. There's this really cool, and again, this is a technical thing, and I don't know how they accomplished it. I'm not sure. There's a varying mix of like temperatures in the shot, where like the the docks themselves and the costuming lends itself to this like cold, wet uh, environment. And and I'm sitting there on the couch watching this thing, thinking I should throw a blanket on because it's kind of cold but then you look at the contrast between the skin tones of all of the aliens like the mon the mon calas look like they look like lobster that are ready to come out of the pot you know they're so red and even some of the quarren like their skin tones and the frog couple they're so bright and vibrant like there's this such a tonal yeah frog dad such a uh tonal like a there's a there's a temperature difference there i agree there's a scene coming up if i forget it remind me about a tonal change uh where it it, it because the episode is so drab and gray there's a there's an incredible tonal change at one point just for yeah. a split second that is really important uh i just want to say i got to apologize to 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 frog mom uh for thinking that that she was more nefarious than yeah. she was and that uh that a strong independent woman couldn't be good with a blaster and really good at um reprogramming security droids. So uh, shout out to Frog Mom. Really sorry about that. She deserves every bit of that. Kind of cool though. Uh, they hop off and uh, and she kind of goes into this, I guess it's really just kind of like calling for him, which is kind of, it's kind of cheesy, but at the same time, it's kind of not. No, you know? what would you do? I would certainly. Yeah. I certainly would. Yeah. They get their moment. They do. They do, and nice. they get this real touching, uh, touching moment where you know they do. They get that that moment. They're reunited, and it, there's that tender moment where they, you know, they touch suction cuppy hands and mm-hmm. you know nuzzle each other, and then the big thank you moment. But then we're right back into the quest, and it's uh, you know I was told you could lead me to others of my kind, and uh, you know frog frog dad, uh, played by John Cameron. Do we know more about him? Uh, producer on Legion. Legion, the film. TV series. Oh, Legion, the TV. I haven't watched it yet. So. No, me neither. Okay. Is it based I on watched, the film? I've, I've dabbled in it. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. In, it's in the X-Men universe. Oh. Yeah, son of Charles Xavier. Oh, yeah. that Legion. I was thinking Legion, yeah. the, the film with uh, Dennis. No, not that. No. That's something else. What am I thinking no. of? Anyway, it doesn't matter what I'm thinking. No. Into the end. In the end, this is a pretty cool scene. Again, that whole sort of... Almost like 1930s, late 30s, early 1940s, like the way that he's, he has that interaction with him about, you know, ordering food and how these seats are scarce. So anybody who's sitting has got to eat. 
Yeah, Depression era stuff. Very much so. Oh, but before we get to the end, we get that scene from the trailer, the the first look at Sasha Banks. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, at this point... It's cut differently because you get uh, in the trailer, the child looks up at Mando and looks down at the child and they have a moment there. It's not in the episode. No. I never did get the sense from the trailer that Mando actually saw her, but from watching the episode, to me, he clearly glances over, sees her, she recognizes that, oh, he saw me, and that's why she ducks away. Yeah, I kind of got that vibe, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at this point, I'm still thinking, you know, oh, you know, skin tone, and, and you know, it could be. I'm still very much in the, maybe it is Sabine, mm-hmm. you know? I was in that camp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then we get this long... There's a long shot where I think it's a boom shot too, where the camera pans back and up. And then again, that, that water world vibe, but really just going back to what I had said before about this whole show, maybe better than anything else, just gives me that impression that it's a real lived in world. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's so true. And that's what was really missing from the prequels. I agree with you on that. Yeah. Yeah, They all wore uniforms and there was lots of, identifiable Star Warsy elements, but everything just shiny and new. Yeah, very much. Almost in a in a Trek sense, you know, like No, it's very true. Even Tatooine was shiny and new. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So back into the end, the frog couple motions uh Mando to go through the door and then he kinda gestures at the innkeeper who tells them to take a seat. And again there orders the chowder, uh talks about the scarcity of the seats and how everybody needs to eat. But then, in the calamari flan. Well, here's the perfect. yeah, and here is the thing, like the the calamari flan. Do we think that that's the the currency that he was paid in the first season? Uh, Possibly. I mean, it's probably one of the common currencies if it's it's readily available to you know gangsters and then regular folk. It, it, it is it is the thing he goes to instead of imperial credits and before yeah. Beskar. So yeah, so um, Beskar comes up kind of. What's the word I'm looking for? It comes up in this episode again when we were talking about it as currency and as uh, a very highly yeah yeah we're rich brothers yeah 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 so yeah he slides the the calamari flan across the table and says I'll buy information you know and uh, you know turns out the innkeeper does know and he he actually says the others with Beskar have been through here and through that interaction he arranges for Mando to meet with this Quarren. I don't know, unsavory. Well, felt like don't. an RPG game interaction. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, he's the questionable, I can help you, maybe. But do we yeah. trust him? Right. And at first I'm like, sure, I trust him. You know, and I think it's the, I've already sort of bought into the idea that, you know, Mon Calamari are, are good guys. Yeah. And <laughs> so if, if they're working with the core. Right. So, I mean, if the Mon Calamari sets it up, it's got to be okay. Which begs the question at the end of the episode, was the Mon Calamari innkeeper, was he in on the double cross the whole time or was he, you know, ignorant of that? Don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. Which could know. implicate Frog Mom again. <laughs> Can put her back on your, uh, put her back in your sights. She's good for now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got my eye on you though. Side note on the server. Yeah. Played by Norwood Cheek. Norwood Cheek. Okay. Another person that I can't tell you anything about. <laughs> uh, notable because he's a member of Cardinal Family Singers with Peyton Reed. 
Oh, so Peyton Reed of the director, director of, of the last episode. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Crazy. Nepotism. I wonder. Yeah, really, eh? Who do we know? <laughs> I don't know anybody. I know uh-huh. you. I know you. Yeah, you could be in my movie, bro. Oh, right on. <laughs> I feel like this uh, next moment is kind of this. It's almost a callback to the passenger with the chowder and the the squid. Yeah, no, definitely. It was. It's. I call it catharsis. Of for it's a little bit uh, almost a jokey slap in the face is the wrong word, but a, a light tap to the back of the head for us all assuming face hugger. Yeah, yeah. Immediately, it was almost like a comedic beat to go. Ah, uh, no, no, no. I loved it. Here's what we think of face huggers, and it was great. It was so funny, actually. As he's just kind of like, oh, just hands kind of waving and like. This muffled, the muffled, blah, 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 I don't know what to do. <laughs> cool moment though. Yeah. Like don't play with your food as he like leans over and very adeptly poke. <laughs> and that was the end of that. Right on. So um, we make the deal with the corn who says, yeah, I can, you know, I can take you to others of your kind, but it's a few hours sale. And uh, then we get another uh, little moment from the the trailer that we've seen. And at this point now, when the camera dials in on the boat, it's clearly a fishing vessel of some kind with all the outrigging on it and the the traps and the barrels and the netting. And I'm like, oh, okay, so it literally is a fishing boat. It's sort of strange that they fish above water. Yeah, for a race that is completely <laughs> aquatic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Sort of strange. Yeah, so I, didn't, I didn't pick it up, but I was reading and someone else said, that it might be a repurposed hammerhead cruiser as featured in Rogue One. It's awfully small for a hammerhead. It could be a portion of a hammerhead. Maybe. Are they they use calling the mast at the front to be like the... That doesn't make sense to me. Hmm. I think the scale is maybe a little off there. I'd have to go back and look at it, but... It gave me uh, vibes of like a more haphazard desert skiff, only not on repulsors. Yeah, very much so. Very much I know the descriptive uh, the descriptive video called the big structure on the front a mast, and then it said the two outriggers were uh, pontoons below the surface. Hmm. Oh, cool! Yeah, so some kind of boat. Um, but again, uh, in, I love the descriptive audio. It's it's key. Yeah, it's really helpful, and yeah. and uh, it's funny how uh, how plainly it's read in whoever that lady is. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah, actually. I yeah, yeah. Her listen to her read a whole novel yeah but that scene does have another throwback to the pirates vibe in what in what sense in like the cruising by and the ship going out oh yeah yeah yeah. very pirates of the caribbean ish yeah and the whole like top down looking down on the boat and, and seeing the crew bustling around going about whatever their duties are yeah the crew entirely uh corn by the way Mm -hmm. and again the descriptive video kind of helped in this one because i didn't really i couldn't really put it together but it very specifically mentions that at least for three of them it refers to them as Quarren brothers one two and three it's true so apparently uh Quarren's, uh have large families <laughs> so the guy from the inn basically talks about you know they have this what they call a, a mama core uh on board in what i've just, I called it a wet hold because I, yeah, yeah. Definitely hold. yeah. Um, no real explanation for why they have it other than they just have it. You ever seen one eat? Yeah. And it's like, what, what's going on here? 
And a huge thing about, you know, we usually feed it in the morning, but uh, we didn't do that today because we knew we were going out. And then we get the double cross. Yep. Yeah. Um, it, uh, and we see the pram is like, it's like a repulsor lift thing. And, and yeah. it, doesn't, it almost hits the water. So it doesn't, it doesn't do as well over water as land. You kind of wonder if maybe in the, whatever his pole arm, his gaff it's, hook, yeah, yeah, yeah. Smashed he smacked it, it with, if it damaged it. Yeah, that's possible as possible too. So this is an interesting part of the episode where I really struggle with this because as soon as he started talking the the Quarren character, I'm like, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm I got really dialed in on the on the voice and I'm like and, and I went a bunch of different ways as we <laughs> as we talked about off show and I'm just kind of I'm going to go through my process here cuz it's it's pretty silly but um originally I thought that the that Quarren might have been uh, Carl Weathers just disguising his voice. And on some level, I think you can kind of hear that. And, and to me, it was an easy stretch because they already have him as a cast member. So just, you know, hey, can you do an alien creature for us for an episode? There's certainly a precedent for actors doing multiple characters. Of course. Voiceovers. What's that? Especially voiceovers. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, characters. look at animation, right? Look at how many uh, character roles can be played by one actor in the course of a single episode of any animated show. It's true. You know, yeah. Archer and Bob's Burgers. Yeah. 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 And Family Guy. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a great example. I usually, my default is uh, Frank Welker, you know, Frank Welker who can, who can voice virtually anybody. Really. I mean, he's just that versatile. It's true. But yeah. So at first I'm like, maybe it's Carl Weathers. And I'm like, no, it's not Carl Weathers. And then I'm just listening to the gruffness of the voice and I'm like, Jason Momoa, maybe? And I'm like, no. And then I had this big, like, oh, my God moment. And I, I sent you a message. I sent both of you messages. I'm like, I'm going to eat my boot if it's not this guy. <laughs> and uh, I thought, and it, now in hindsight, it's completely silly that I even thought this. But for a minute, I thought it might have been Brad Pitt. And There's the way he delivers one of the lines that I, I, I kind of, I mean, I might have been just really search, rooting for you. You know, <laughs> and searching I know. really hard. I didn't want to lead you guys and and get on the bandwagon with me, but it was like I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put my foot down on this one. And this is what I think. I thought it could have been Wilfred Brimley for a sec. I don't even is he still alive? He's not alive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, hell of a trick. Vibe. Hey, from the grave. <laughs> yeah. hey, Tarkin was in a movie, so he absolutely True. was. I say I agree with your final landing. I thought Brad Pitt in the line where he's like. Let the kids see. And I was in, immediately reminded of, you know, the Oceans movies, like Oceans 11, where there's a couple moments where he's got to disguise his voice over the phone. And it was very much that same kind of lisp. But early on in the in the conversation, Andy sends a message over and he's like, Edgar suit. And I'm like, Edgar suit? Yeah, from Vincent D'Onofrio. Vincent D'Onofrio out of Men in Black. Mm. And then I'm watching it. And I this is my third time around. And uh, Kim is on the couch with me and we're watching it and I'm, we've just finished watching it and I've gone back to the scene and I'm playing it over and over and over again. Cause I'm still not a hundred percent settled on what I think this is. And Kim looks at me and she's like Edgar suit. And I'm like, Oh, you're right. So anyway, um, I think we're all in agreement that the, the Quarren, uh, brother number two is Vincent D'Onofrio and he's using that same voice that he did for men in black. Yeah, I wrote. I wrote to you. I'm convinced. Yeah, 
that you're correct. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. He, he sounds a lot like Edgar Suit. Yeah, very much. Oh, brother. Oh, that's a fantastic uh, impression, by the way. Oh, thanks. So, this one's going to be out for a while because there's no credit on it. Well, that's right. And I mean, we talked a bit about the Brad Pitt thing and his uh, his uncredited appearance in Deadpool. Yeah. Where he did a voiceover for that. and Oh, no, it was no voiceover. It was just a face. Sorry, yes. Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, you're like right. Half second clip of his face. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk about the Mama Core for a minute. Mm. And uh, this again, uh, no reference, no previous references for this monster in the lore. At first, before I watched it with subtitles, I thought he said Mama Corrin. Oh, yeah. Okay. And so my brain was like, what, oh, are these things spawned from this crazy big creature? <laughs> I do have in my notes that every every fifth species has crazy rows of teeth like a yeah, sarlacc really. pit. Yeah. We get a lot of that in this. We got it with, <laughs> we got it with the spiders in the previous episode. Yeah. We're getting it again. And again, like you said before. Great dragon as well. Great dragon. Going as far back as that scene with the Minox in Empire and how they had like that circular <laughs> mouth. Yeah. Every fifth species has rows of teeth. The Mamacore, I felt, looked a lot like a, and very much suitable for an episode that's all on the water, but I said it looks like a sea anemone. And then my, the only other thing I could think of was the, uh, the Black Mercy from uh, DC Comics had a very similar kind of, you know, tentacled, you know, toothy. But I don't think this one has the ability to take over your brain. Probably In the not. descriptive audio, they call it a leviathan. Oh, that's a great, great description for it, too. And that, again, lends itself to, like, a Pirates of the Caribbean-style sure Kraken. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool monster, nonetheless. For sure. Um, I kind of wonder, though, do they keep this thing specifically for those purposes? Like, because those guys, like you say, they were like, we're going to be rich because now the best cars ours. And they slam the door. Or First of all, I should say, the uh, once the child is swallowed, the Din makes... Like doesn't no even no hesitation, dives in like immediately like a concerned father, concerned oh, yeah. parent. But then there's the the struggle between, and I equate it to. We talked a little bit about life support in Beskar armor, which mm. apparently does not include an oxygen supply. I totally, I said that helmet is not pressurized. Yeah, I know. Yeah, finally, we, finally we know. Yeah, so there's this contrast between. Wanting to, you know, save the child, but I can't breathe. So possibly not able to swim either. Well, maybe not too, because of the weight of his armor. I thought that because he went down and sort of came to the surface, but in a hell of a struggle. Yeah, so bobbed I back up and, and it at one point did and say, look oh, like oh, the jetpack was going heavy. off. Yeah, you got that impression I too. I got that eh? impression that the jetpack was firing to keep him afloat. Yeah, and oh, I have to look at that again. Yeah, good call. Maybe yeah. not as effective underwater. No, maybe who knows, but they're definitely, you know, I, I listened to it a couple of times and one of the brothers is like drown them. And they, they just, they start hammering them with all those poles, right. Trying to, uh, to get them to go down. So is it the mama core that, that does the killing or the drowning that does the killing? Like, I, I don't get it. Maybe a bit of both. Yeah. So my question is if these guys who were ostensibly pirates, if they're doing this on the regular, how are they recovering whatever it is from the mama core? Maybe it spits it out like a sarlacc. I don't know. It's it's yeah, it's possible. Maybe maybe it it's a, an intelligent creature that works with them. Maybe perhaps maybe they've got some sort of 
they've got baby manacores held hostage or something. Well, that's a fantastic point too. You know, perhaps it's more intelligent than we're led to believe. Well, that's just it. And I think that there's a predisposition to associate anything monstrous as unintelligent. And that's not always the case. There's a neat thing on Twitter uh, a couple months ago, and it was a guy interacting with Pablo Hidalgo. Sure. Asking why in all the literature, the word Tauntaun is never capitalized. And Pablo Hidalgo says, we don't capitalize creatures. Rancors aren't capitalized. Sarlaccs aren't capitalized. Tauntauns aren't capitalized. And I thought, well, that's kind of a neat distinction. To denote uh, them as beasts? As opposed to sentient characters. Oh, okay, okay. Classes, if you will, you know? Like, that's kind of neat. It is kind of neat. And, and I never would have picked up on that. Never, never. Again, yeah. So I'm like, judging from the conversation between the deckhands, it appears that this has been a common tactic for them to pirate other people of their valuables. In this case, the best guard that the Mandalorian is wearing. So they, that leads me into my whole line of questioning about how do they, how exactly do they go about doing that? But then there's a whole other layer to that. Does that mean that they've actually gotten other Mandalorians or does this lean back into that idea of Beskar as currency and they've gotten, they've lifted ingots, you know, of Beskar off of other travelers? It, it could be that this is a whole sort of Mandalorian armor poaching. Maybe. Uh, division of the, I know I'm stretching, but. Like Beskar is highly sought after, so maybe it's a thing they could really cobble together fairly quickly. We don't see time pass between the the scene and the inn and between the we just see a wipe and he's on the ship, so maybe they got the ship ready. Maybe they could have you know, maybe they spent the morning uh <laughs> putting a manicor in a hold to to get ready. It still doesn't make sense why they fish above water too. No. The next scene, even though it's the cavalry and it's wonderful, it almost yep. doesn't make sense. Either. That they just, I was thinking about that last night. I mean, I, I, I was really like, <laughs> I was burning it at both ends. At by the time I'd wrapped up my notes, I'm like, I just can't write anymore. But that hit me. It was like, how did they know? Like they just needed to be there, and and I love every second of it. Does it go back to? <laughs> so for those who are, I mean, I guess we should probably bring uh, bring the listeners up to speed on that. So we had this cavalry moment where, lo and behold, three Mandalorians on jetpacks land on the deck and between the three of them make short work of the Corrin crew and rescue Din Djarin. There's so much going on in this scene too. They, oh they my cut, gosh. Yeah. Between uh, Din's POV. Yeah. And then like a sort of a floating POV from uh, a camera. Yeah. They hold on the helmet for a beat. Yeah. And you, and you immediately, if you're a, if you're a fan of rebels and you're a fan of, of uh, clone wars, you immediately know who's under that helmet or, at least whose helmet it was originally. Exactly, yeah. And uh, then there's another beautiful moment where the second female character rockets in and she does this like spinning barrel roll kick. Yeah. In a comic books, and I, I was, that's amazing. I love that. I watched that thing like eleven times. There's a. It's a really good drop kick, which lends oh, to her so other. It, yeah, yeah her it really does. Yeah, and I don't know because I'm so out of touch with the WWE. Is that a, a signature for her? I don't know if it's a full-on signature but it is something she's utilized yeah i actually when i when i when i googled it and got her real name i was like oh that's not sasha banks and yeah I called a picture of sasha banks and put it beside the actress from a still from the show and i was yeah. like well no that's the same person yeah. what's going on here mercedes how, yeah uh mercedes what's her name last um, name andy barn barnado yeah i don't want to i am so out of touch with wrestling i do not well. want to mess it up so we'll just go with sasha banks <laughs> perfect <laughs> 
And then the uh, the the male Mandalorian that that drops down, I noticed like his fighting style was more yeah. like karate. Like they they were so much more fluid, and they're really more like they're better at what they were doing. Absolutely, they are. And well, I, I and I I wrote down a uh, more kung fu than Krav Maga, which is yeah more like. Mando's like breakneck, like absolutely has to end an opponent as quick as possible. It's funny because I I made some notes about the the contrasting fighting styles too, and I'll, I'll talk about it a little bit later because it lends itself. There's another there's another cue in the episode that triggered me to it, which we'll get to. But very good point that there. It's important to note that there is a difference in style, and it's important also to note that that style not only is it like you say more karate and less Krav Maga, but I think there is also a difference because there's three of them fighting in concert versus the Mandalorian who's always fighting alone. No, they look like a well-oiled machine. Yes, very many, much. Many times together. Absolutely. Yeah. So like we say, the the cage is open. He's plucked from the water. And as he's sitting there, so this, is, this is another thing. Um, and this goes back to last episode in The Passenger. And, and you know, we kind of softened our approach to it from throwaway episode to big character development piece. And I just want to touch on that for a second because I really feel like this scene, when you have an episode that is so short and so action packed, there's only so many ways that you can get in those moments. And I really feel like this moment where Mando is sitting, uh, sitting outside the cage and he's like visibly like, (sighs) he's rocking back and forth, trying to catch his breath. Get the child. Do you hear the urgency in his voice? There's a creature. Get me, get the kid. There's a creature. It's got the child. Save the child. That's not a protector. That's a parent. Yeah. That is very much. Yeah. He panicked like a parent. And uh, he's thankful when they rescue the child like a parent. Yeah, exactly. And I really, I really empathize with this character in his development. And I'm super happy that they're writing him this way. And the more time we spend with him and the more time that they're together, the less he's still gruff and rough and tumble, you know, in a, in that Han solo kind of way, but there's Certainly. more, there's more there's, to him. There's a really powerful moment before he gets out of the water where she puts out her hand. Yeah. And he reaches yeah. for it and she pulls him out and that it reduces him to the child for a moment again. Oh, exactly. It's the same. Uh, I went back and watched that episode from the from the finale, and yeah. it's the same scene. It's shot from a different angle. Is I was that... even actually looking at it to see if it was a female character that pulled him out. I don't think it was, but as a child, I mean. But it's very powerful. Yeah, super, super cool. In the moment back. of his parenting, and he's reduced to a child momentarily yeah. to, to, really, to really bring that home. Well, is this not the first time at least in the course of the show that we've truly seen him helpless. I agree. You know, we've never, we've never seen him in a, in a situation where if they don't show up, well, this is it. Like he's never been in a situation where he didn't have some, some recourse, some trick, something in his, in his tickle trunk to get him out of that situation. I thought he was going to grab one of the spears and bring it down there and kill the creature and come back up. Possibly. was I had all these ideas because yeah. you know he's James Bond, right? He can't die here, but it, then then he he needs to be rescued. Does just out of curiosity, does anybody know? Does Bryce Dallas Howard have children? I believe she mentions that in gallery that she has children. Because she has yeah. kids, and I wonder if that plays into her direction of this episode. You know, uh, it's it's quite possible. It's, yeah, his acting again is stupendous, considering that he's under a helmet. I can't I can't keep coming. Oh, back absolutely not. Yeah, so 
no surprise. I guess we should talk about this, probably bring this up now because it's it's very important to the direction, not only of this episode, but potentially for the direction of the entire series. Um, The three Mandalorians, let's talk about them specifically. So we've got Katie Sackhoff, previously uh, revealed to be cast as uh, Bo-Katan of Clan Cries. And we've got Sasha Banks uh, as Koska Reeves. And Simon, I don't want to, I don't want to mess up this guy's name. Simon Kazdianades, Kazdian, Kazdianades as Axe Woves. So fantastic. Everybody looks just perfect. (laughs) Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about um, sort of the lore and the history and and why these people are important. And uh, let's start with, um, let's start with Bo-Katan's helmet specifically. The Night Owl. Yeah, exactly. So there's a line where they're, they have their little, I don't want to call it a standoff, but it really, it is. It's kind of a standoff where it's helmets are removed and faces are revealed and, or sorry, he says, I've been searching for you for a long time. And, you know, immediately the helmet comes off and it's almost a callback to the marshal. It's like, where'd you get that? <laughs> he, he just watched them save his bacon. He yeah. steps, he know he's got to know somewhere in there that he's not ready to deal with three of those guys right no. now. And he steps them anyway, because this is the way. Yeah, exactly. Which we're going to find out doesn't necessarily mean it's the only way. Gets deep, man. It does. It gets really deep here. And so here we have these three three characters, one of which is, I don't want to say a legacy character, but at this point she's she has enough history on her own to be counted as a heavy hitter. She's a major player in the galaxy. And so Bo-Katan. more screen time than Luke Skywalker. I guess if you totaled up the number of minutes on screen, I guess so, yeah. Yep. So for those of you who don't know, Bo-Katan is a naturalized, born Mandalorian. And if you're a fan of the Clone Wars, she's the sister of Satine, the once insinuated girlfriend of Obi-Wan Kenobi. So it's important to know that in the history of Mandalore, there were there was a movement, uh, whereas Satine wanted to uh, lead the planet forward, sort of peaceably. Potentially, you know, there was this bid to join the Republic or, you know, join the Confederacy, and Satine wanted to maintain Mandalore's independence, but she wanted to do it peaceably. Like she didn't feel she didn't there want was to get a need. involved in the Clone Wars. Yeah, she didn't. But then there's this this other sect, as we'll call them, who really felt like, you know, they wanted to restore the the culture to their ancient warrior ways. And they were uh, going under the, the moniker, the Death Watch. And uh, if you listen to our uh, season one recap, you'll know that the Death Watch is the organization that rescued Din Djarin in childhood. Oh, certainly. Yeah. And they played such a big part in... Uh... In both Rebels and Clone Wars. They do. They do. At some point in the, in the history of, uh, of the planet, there's, a, there's an ideological shift within the Death Watch itself where Bo-Katan herself is actually a member of the Death Watch under the leadership of uh, Pre Vizsla, who is voiced by Jon Favreau. And they have an, uh, an ideological falling out where I guess this is around the time when uh, I guess Maul kind of takes over. It's, so. it's really close. They're, they're sort of bumping heads as we were heading into that storyline. Yeah. It was all sort of part and parcel. And I, I just got to, we got to step back a bit because they do, there's some exposition uh, and I think it occurs in Rebels, but it's about what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. 
it's uh, Fen Rao talking to Kanan Jarrus about the Mandalore. That's right. Uh, uh, Tar Vizsla was the first Mandalore to be allowed in the Jedi Order. Right. So he would be the maker of the dark saber of the dark saber right and 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 therefore and he was a, he he died a jedi they don't really get into that but he died a jedi and was so right. revered that the jedi kept his saber uh, yeah at the temple in honor of him and some and that and he also references that that's about a thousand years ago right so we could be talking about the old republic and dipping into that legend stuff that we know about the mandalore Oh right, right, right. So that could be the same guy because we know we're pulling from legends where it's where it's fruitful. Well, uh, then I mean, just as an aside to that, I guess there's a uh, room for that to be explored in this High Republic stuff that's coming. Certainly, because it puts us a little closer to that. You know, that yeah, structure in the memory. Yeah, and it, he also talks about the conflict between the Jedi and the Mandalorians, and that this is back so eight hundred years before. Uh, the Battle of Yavin. Yeah, that, that, that's when the split occurs, and the ancestors of of Tar Vizsla raid the Jedi Temple and take back the dark saber. Right, and then it's passed down father to son all the way to pre Vizsla when we meet him right. in the Clone Wars. Right, because he's in possession of it when we first are introduced to him. Absolutely. Right. That's right. Little exposition for no, it's perfect because I mean it's been a while since I've watched those episodes, so I was a little foggy on sort of the the uh where the ideological shift uh came from but that totally clears it up and i had previously thought that there was a dramatic ideological shift when maul obtains the saber sure uh, but then i'm thinking well like i i sort of tried to age dinjarn and, and it puts him i don't know how old he is in that scene i put him at about six maybe seven years old yeah in that rescue scene and yeah. that puts him at about 36 years old here uh, which is perfect. He's forty-five. The actor is forty-five. He's yep. always wearing a helmet. It's not yep. necessary, but it's it definitely predates Maul's coup with the super commandos right. during the early days of the Empire. No, you're right. But it's important to note that it, that it's around that time where there's this again talking about ideologies where Bo-Katan and Pre Vizsla they fall out with each other. Certainly, and she's decided that she can no longer follow them because, in her her opinion, no offworlder will ever be Mandalore. Right. She's, she's a purist and she gives some pretty neat acting. Like I looks too in some of the scenes with like, she is a purist. Yeah. 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 You know, she, she didn't necessarily agree with the pacifistic ways of her sister, but she mm-hmm. was very much of the opinion that, you know, only Mandalorians can be Mandalore. Right. And yeah, she, she says the word zealot uh, with some zealousness. She, yeah, she does. It's it's very very nuanced performance. I yeah, there's more there's more to her in terms of in terms of Din Djarin, I don't think she's necessarily an ally. I don't think she's an ally. Certainly not in the immediate sense. But uh, there's a point in the episode where I think she. Oh, I'm going to hold off on that because it, mm. it's going to interrupt my flow, and I don't want to miss. Certainly. I don't want to yeah, miss something. Yeah, yeah. So now that we have a rough idea of who these people are, there's a line where she says. You're a a child of the watch. And so, of course, that means we know that means the death watch. But the more I thought about that, it's like, okay, so if we what do we know about the death watch? We know that Din Djarin is a foundling. We know that the uh, the heavy Mandalorian infantryman Mm -hmm. is a descendant of Pre Vizsla. So Paz Vizsla, also voiced by Jon Favreau. Makes sense. Yes, yes. Makes a lot of sense. And I had had sent you a little message. You did. Yeah, perhaps. 
the rightful heir to the throne of Mandalore. Entirely possible. But then I started having these sort of questions about like, you know, children of the watch and it, and it calls into question the, the authority of the armor, the armor who is arguably the, the caretaker of the, the oral history of the clan has no, she has no idea who the Jedi are. It's, it's true. Or, or from a certain point of view may kick in here. That's entirely possible. Perhaps she's not educating her children as to who the Jedi are. I feel like it's more a case of, you know, these, these, uh, children of the watch, the clan, how they, they exist in these coverts. I think they exist in these coverts because somewhere along the line, we've run out of, of naturally born Mandalorians to carry on the, the tradition. And so the only way that we can survive, cause he says weapons are my religion, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Mandalorian code is less of a, of a philosophy and it's, they've really, they've really dug into it as a, as an edict. And, and the only way that they could survive was by going around the galaxy and picking up kids and indoctrinating them, you know, almost like this brainwashing, very you know, this is the way. Yes. Very similar, but maybe not necessarily to the same, uh, with the same intent. This episode of Fandom Power is brought to you in part by CollectorsPlatoon.ca. CollectorsPlatoon.ca, organizers of the annual Toronto Collectors Platoon Toy Show. Check out CollectorsPlatoon.ca, the Canadian home of Ian's display accessories, specializing in action figure stands for figures of all scales. Visit CollectorsPlatoon.ca today. So anyway, just kind of food for thought about, you know, what does the... That point kind of like there's a there's a thing like he, he's a uh, I say worldly but he's a galactic guy he's all over the system chasing yeah. down bounties he seems to know a lot of languages he knows lore he knows customs of different species he knows how to fly many different ships he's familiar with weapons and things how the hell does he not know who the Jedi are when I, you have Broom Boy playing with action figures in the future I often wonder that too but again you know. Uh, we talked They're about this. To. There's a scene coming up where they talk about Mandalore, the planet. I think it's yeah. in the scene. He's been lied to his whole life. Absolutely. We go back to our previous episode when we talked about how could, um, you know, how could an entire galaxy uh, just basically rule out, you know, thousands of, of years of galactic history and what the Jedi were. And we made that parallel to, you know, what's going on in the United States with the, you know, the, average citizenry refuting you know science Mm -hmm. and so we can actually we actually have a real world example of how people can how a truth can be untold in in such a short period of time so it's not outside of the realm of possibility that he has no idea it just you know you just i think as you know well grounded and well-rounded people we have a hard time understanding that it's possible i it's very telling that she calls them a cult and what we know about cult sort of mentality is yeah. certainly the brainwashing aspect. Uh, and I, I, th- I think it's very, it's, it's very neat in terms of the, the lore of Mandalore. He uses the term. There is only one way. Yeah. The it's way the of the way Mandalore of Mandalore. Yeah. And uh, so I, it's, 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 this is all very, very, very exciting for me. It's, Oh, it's super exciting for me too, because it puts us on a crash course to, uh, at least in the broader sense, 
uh, Bo-Katan is gunning for the Darksaber because she she wants to restore, uh, liberate Mandalore. And this is, and she's, she says in this scene, and I'm going to jump ahead. Of it yeah, sure. She says in this scene, uh, we want to restore somebody to the throne. Yeah. We'll restore someone to the throne. And then in the scene later, when she's got the knife to the officer's throat, sorry, <laughs> spoilers. Yeah. Yep. Uh, she says, I want the sword so I can rule. And she's, you know, so it's a, she's still very zealous herself. Well, she even says she makes a reference to Gideon uh, possessing something that belonged to me. Yes. You know, like she's and rightly so. I mean, in Star Wars Rebels, she's the last person we see wielding the Darksaber. Mm, Right. Yeah. So at some point, you know, between the ending of Rebels and the unleashing of Sabine's weapon that we don't actually see, Mm. it somehow has changed hands. And now Moff Gideon, uh, in fact, has it. So. And that's the uh, the event that he talks about, like the the night of a thousand a, tears. There's a the man, uh, Din Jaren. It's hard, it's hard to call one guy the Mandalorian. I know. In the episode now, it's wicked. Um, where he's saying, you know, you can't. That planet is cursed. He believes some crazy esoteric crap. Like yes. He doesn't believe in the Force, but he or know what the Force is, but he thinks a planet can be cursed. That if you go there, you're going to die. And so they've told these children that there's, you know, because they came from a place. And see, I watched the, uh, sorry, I'm a little scatterbrained. No, it's okay. I watched, I watched the, the finale episode from last season. Yeah. And there's a little expedition position uh, by Din while they're, they're hunkered down. And he says, the reason that Gideon knows who I am is because I was on record in the, in the, the records of Mandalore. So at some point he's officially Mandalorian too. Like, like. Do you know what I mean? He's on record on Mandalore as being a Mandalorian. I'm gonna have to uh, go back and revisit that because I don't, I don't remember that exactly. It's right after the scene because it's so powerful. You get to see him as a child being pulled out, and then there's Mandalorians fighting battle droids everywhere. So That's right. When they cut back to him, he says, "I was a child. I was a foundling." And I was taken to the fighting groups where I was trained. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I was raised as a Mandalorian. Yeah. And the reason he knows who I am is because any trace of my being Mandalorian were destroyed with the records on Mandalore and oh, right, right. control of the Empire when they raided that. And so at some point, he, you know, unless there's a continuity error there, and I don't, I think we're too crafty for that. I don't know if it's a continuity error. I think maybe, if anything, it could be something along the lines of, you know, um, Mandalorian as a religion, as an indoctrination that maybe they did, you know, keep records on that. Certainly the death watch, they, they operated on Mandalore. So hmm. no, no stretch of the imagination there. And they had a home world. The death watch had their own home world Concordia. Yeah, that's right. Which was like a moon of, uh, hmm. of, um, Concord Dawn was a moon of Mandalore, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think they had the, the Concord Dawn was destroyed. And I was thinking that uh, perhaps in light of this, uh, that Bo-Katan and the, and the Night Owls or or what that part of Death Watch or whatever they are, uh, uh, yeah, Axe Wolves armor doesn't have any indicators, are are the Splinter Group now. That the 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 coverts of Mandalorians with this new rule may be the main Mandalorians. Could they be, in fact, the majority? That's yeah. That's it's a neat thought, and it does. I think that it's telling that the armor has spikes on her helmet. 
Uh, yeah. Initially, I wanted to just write that off as just being coincidence, but now, in light of what we know, yeah, it totally makes Bo-Katan sense. really wants the dark saber, and despite you know all, like I say, like Paz Vizla could be the rightful heir. Yeah. It's all about who wields the dark saber. They're willing to follow Gar Saxon. They're willing to follow yeah. Darth Maul. And there's actually a part. I don't know if you ever read the Son of Dathomir comic. Mm, I did not. Crazy plot hole for me, and it's one of the bigger ones in Star Wars. It's that uh, Almec, who's the Prime Minister of yep. Mandalore. Yeah. Uh, uh, in in the Clone Wars cartoon, Sidious comes to Mandalore, yep. where Darth Maul has set up shop. Oh. And duels him. Oh. And imprisons him, lets him live, and imprisons him. Says he has different plans for him. Yeah. And there's also actually in a, in a new novel or or something that george lucas was talking about it's an old interview but he's talking about his plans for the sequel trilogy would have involved leia being eventually oh the i just world. read that yeah and the big baddie would have been darth, darth maul. maul yeah i just read that and i'm like oh how disappointing is that <laughs> yeah right and so after maul's imprisoned by the emperor and there's a scene in the son of dathomir comic where palpatine and dooku are are gloating yeah and uh, it's really making Maul mad because he's the apprentice, right? He, right. You know, he has this interaction with Dooku. I'm, I'm, get, I'm really digressing. But the point is that Olmec sends Gar Saxon in the Super Commandos yep. and the precursor to Johto Cast. Yes. I can't, it's, a, it's a cast, a clan cast guy. Okay. They go and they break Maul out of the of the, the prison and give him back the Darksaber and restore oh, wow. him to the leader. And why would the Prime Minister why would you do that? do that? Yeah. When they had, when Gar Saxon, who eventually does take the... Has it, yeah. Why would they have gave it back to Maul? It's, that's a weird choice, considering who it's a very competitive field, if yeah, you will. Yeah, yeah, of course. Anybody who wields the saber. Yeah. So right now, Gideon yep. is the de facto ruler of Mandalore. That's right, yeah. I mean, that was the that was the big implication for me. That was the, I literally jumped out of my seat and like, <gasps> Moff Gideon is Mandalore. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> I want to go back and talk about the armor for a second. And, and again, going back to that, uh, you know, you just made a reference about the armor doesn't really tell you anything, but at the same time, doesn't it though? Like the Paz Vizsla, the big heavy Mando, I mean, clearly he's got some replacement parts on there, but look at the, the color of his armor. It's very much in the Death Watch colors. Even I agree with that. He I has absolutely n- agree with that. none of the Death Watch markings, but even Bo-Katan and her, her crew are also wearing the Death Watch colors. I mean, she was in the Death Watch, so it makes perfect sense that, you know, they still kept those colors. It's true. And then there is the actual... Like much later, there is the diametrical split of Death Watch, half following Pre Vizsla. That's right. Before his death, and half following Maul. And presumably, perhaps the followers of those two people kept going off in varying directions. I think this is how we end up with the uh, the children of the Watch and how like I, I was saying. I like, do too, but they it, just oh, but they are they are taken before Maul does takes over. So that's that's, that's right. Yeah timeline kind of idiosyncrasy there for me but i i feel strongly that there is some connection to the followers of maul and yep. the armor yeah yeah totally i'm curious to know if we're gonna get that i mean on some level i'm sure there's going to be some conflict on a bigger scale between you know groups of mandalorians and not just you know bo challenging you know everything that Din Djarin has ever known about his life <laughs> in one or two lines which she does quite effectively i might add 
No, it's true. She's she's a master manipulator. Oh, big she, time. She throws his his brainwashing, which we see now, sort of. Yeah. This is the way is almost like like a uh, like a control word. She uses it on him twice in the That's episode, right. and he just sort of snaps. Oh, well, yeah. there's almost a there's almost a a duality there because in the first instance, where like it's you know. There's only one way, the way of the Mandalore. And then he he leads with it. This is the way. And she responds to it. But the second time around is that, you know, going back to that character development piece, when she leads with it, because she gives him that, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but she, she leads with that, your bravery will not be forgotten. And she says, there's basically alludes, there's a place for you. And she says it, and her tone is ever slightly different. This is the way, meaning there's another way mm. and he, but he responds in kind. And to me, that's his acknowledgement of, yeah, maybe there is another way, which is why I'm, I firmly believe that going forward, we're going to see a, a more softening of the, of the Din Djarin character. And I think that maybe not by the end of this season, but going down the road, I do believe we're going to see an unmasked Din Djarin I, of his own I, will. I do too. I, I've always thought in my head, just despite the cool factor, why would an actor who's uh, who's a, a leading man take a role where they can't see his take face? A role where you can't see his face. That's a good good point too. So getting back with the uh, uh, where we're at in the episode, I guess at this point, <laughs> um, he does. He has that. There's only one way: the way of the Mandalore, and away he and the child go. Holy cow! I was shocked to know that they didn't really make it that far from land. No. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a pretty close, like from less, land you're watching less than a kilometer, which could explain why they show up so quick. I guess it so. Way bigger. It looks way bigger out there. You this, think this, that there's they've been steaming for hours? You know, no, they just left twi- like twenty minutes ago, and they just made it this far. <laughs> so this is the uh, tonal shift I was talking about with the crazy sunset and the uh, yeah like uh, naval missiles shooting out of it, or the maybe a similar to a shuttle launch. Oh the, yeah, on trails, right? And I, I thought that was a great. I love so that. Diametri- uh, diametrically opposed to the rest of the tone of the episode. It was just such a a beautiful shot, you know, like uh, the way that it was filmed. The the three of them as he's standing there with the child, and the sun's going down, and then the like you say he's the looking at them list list like like you know like almost wow, part of that. Yeah, almost longingly, like mm, mm. am I? Do I? Should I go with them? Right. And then the the explosion and the sinking of the ship. And I thought, oh, that's just a cool moment. But then there's this long walk back into town because by the time we get to the alley sequence, it's fully it's nighttime now. And Mando is accosted once again by another Quarren. You killed my brother. I immediately couldn't help but hearing that song. I don't even it's from the early 90s. Hey, you didn't you kill my brother? (laughs) I sent you a link to it. You have to listen to it. It's crazy. I don't, I don't know how it couldn't be a nod to that song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That phrase is repeated over and over and over in that song. So, I mean, the, the fishing boat had at least four, if not five, uh, Quarren on there. And we know from the descriptive video that at least three of them were brothers. Right. Here's a brother number four, uh, at least four. And, uh, he's showing up with a bunch of goons and, uh, You know, he's going to exact some payback. And once I'm again, kill your pet. yeah, I'm going to kill your pet. Once again, we get the cavalry moment 
and Bo-Katan and crew this show up. More sense. Yeah. But I mean, again, this is her like, oh, this is like real, a real callback to the Bo-Katan we saw in uh, Clone Wars and Rebels. And she's like, he didn't kill your brother. I did. You know, like the big F you. <laughs> but there's a, there's a moment. Was it in the, I don't know if it was in the rescue when they pulled him out of the wet hold. There's a, there's a line. Um, don't worry, brother. Someone calls him brother. Yeah. Was it in that? It's in the wet Yeah. Hold. Okay, it is there. Because I couldn't remember if it was here or if it was earlier, but yeah, more more uh, connective tissue between those characters. We take out the goons and uh, the conversation continues. Like He's had some time to ruminate on it. I guess the walking has afforded him the time to digest everything she told him on the boat. And uh, she's like, hey, can we at least buy you a drink? And then we get to... Uh, Continue that conversation back at the inn. You're listening to Fandom Power. Yeah, so at this point, they uh, decide to go back to the inn, and uh, Bo-Katan picks up the conversation pretty much where she left off on the boat, and she starts filling in even more of the plot holes. We learn that, again, that Trask is this, um, uh, what did I say it was, a black market port. And here again, this goes back to what I was talking about before. She talks about how um, uh, weapons are being uh, bought and sold uh, on Trask with the spoils that were taken from Mandalore. So that almost suggests to me like the whole Beskar as currency thing, uh, as opposed to Beskar as a building material. Uh, it's, it's very true. The only time we see it except for in armor is in these ingots. And so yeah. it looks like that's one of the main things that uh, the, the empire did on Mandalore was like loot. Yeah. The, the place and also remove any, you know, threat to, could be the motivation for going underground in fact to remove any threat to the empire because the maybe Mandalorians certainly had the armor to deal with them well that lends itself to the next line of dialogue where it goes into that whole um she tells him that her intent to retake mandalore and you know that's where he goes into how the that place is that planet's cursed and anyone who goes there ends up dead and she's like uh or he says uh the line is when the empire couldn't control it they made sure no one else could so, got to be referring to Sabine's weapon. That's what I wondered too, to right? But again, I don't recall uh, in Rebels they actually on the nose telling us what that weapon is or what it what it would do. She just kept referring to like how bad it is. I believe there's a little exposition and I it's it's that it superheats and incinerates the the wearer. Okay, well, that's... Uh, it's like a molecular thing. That's rather um, horrific. <laughs> yeah, it's rather horrific. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we do yeah. see that uh, in, in Rebels, there's a scene where Sabine's mom and Tristan, her brother, survive. They run to the... Uh, she's warning them. They run to, like... So it's... The machine has a, a limit. Like, it's like a yeah. diameter, if you will. Okay, yeah. And uh, But all the other Mandalorians are all... Their armor is fine, but they're all reduced to ash. Right, so certainly right. Certainly it would have been easy for the Empire to run around just 
picking up armor and turning it into ingots for currency. And it's a nod to The Last Jedi and how they talk about how the galaxy is a lot like Earth and that uh, there are arms dealers out here that have no allegiance. And yeah. So they'll, they'll sell to the highest bidder. And then you have the Empire here actually having to do rebel style stuff. Yeah, and, really. It's uh, a it's buy a weapons off the black market. Huge contrast to, uh, you know, the earlier, you know, seasons of rebels where it's like ragtag wherever we can get it from. You know, my how the roles have reversed. <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's and it's a who's watching the watchers. It's a it's a nice role reversal. For sure it is. But then Bo-Katan just responds to him with, you know, don't believe everything you've heard. And she's got that sly look like, you know, like you said, he's been lied to. And I think this is just another one of those, another one of those lies. So the question is. She tells him earlier that she fought in the purge. Yeah. Who's put that train of thought in his head that, you know, it's cursed and anyone who goes there dies. And again, this is where I wonder if, if this is just, you know, over successive generations of the Death Watch, as their numbers dwindled and less and less naturally born Mandalorians and more and more indoctrinated uh, religious zealots, somebody had to start the lie somewhere. And now they've just, it's been told so much that they just believe it. Well, certainly if you're a race of faceless Mandalorians, you could never step foot on the home world. No, you're uh, absolutely you know, right. Be sort of diametrically opposed with the ideologies that are inherent there, but you could seriously co-opt all that sort of stuff and having have a nomad race. So, it just kind of struck me now as a uh, as a hmm. I wonder um, what are the chances that Moff Gideon is a naturally born Mandalorian? Ooh, you know, who just bought so hard into the whole Imperial uh, into Compnor and the whole. Uh, the new Imperial. Uh, and having, right. having said that, it, it also maybe might lead to other connotations of Django or Boba being natural born Mandalorians because uh, we're not expressly told that they're not, but that's right. That this culture, and if it's split 800 years before the battle of Yavin, uh, the ideological split, perhaps Django Fett is Mandalorian by, you know, birth and not by nature. Who knows? It's kind of neat. You know, it adds depth there for sure. Uh, being two types, that and, and and one of them being that anybody could be a Mandalorian. Certainly, we see Django take his helmet off, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm certainly, you know, going back to the whole Fett connection. I really hope that, uh, you know, that that walk off uh, into the sunset moment is not the only time we see this character. I, I really think there's an opportunity to build him as, you know, he's the potential to be a, a very a powerful ally or a powerful enemy. And I'm not 100% sure which way that's going to go, but uh, he needs more screen time. Absolutely. Uh, agree. Um, it, it, maybe they, they could be just dangling one, like an after credit scene to sort of like tease us about the next uh, yeah. season or something, but, or hopefully they don't decide to tell the Boba Fett story first and then bring him back. But No, I would um, like to see that. I'd like to see some resolution to his character arc throughout the Mandalorian. Certainly. And they have a lot going on this season now. I mean, they, they drop Ahsoka Tano's name and now, so there's so much going on that, it, I'm. I'll be fairly impressed if it's wrapped up in a neat bow, uh, in the next. 
uh, four, five, five episodes. Five, five episodes. episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Almost halfway. So, yeah. So Bo-Katan suggests to uh, Din Djarin that um, in any event that uh, Mandalorians are stronger together. And here she goes once again, challenging his belief system and planting that seed for him to swing the other way, which I, again, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think he's going to swing by the, by the series uh, conclusion, if not long before that. It's, it, it all depends on what side of, of the, the line she swung to. Like if, if, if the theory that the death watch proper, the night owls proper are yeah. the splinter group, perhaps it's, uh, it's maybe it's her it, that is the an, the antagonist. Well, here's an important point to note about the Night Owls. The Night Owls specifically were an all female band. Yes. She's not traveling solely with females. She's got no. um, Wove. What's the character's name? I Axe Wove. She's Axe got Wove. Axe Wove with him, and you know, just from the the table talk, oh, he's one of them. So they must all be naturally born, or at least. They could be foundlings as well, but they don't share the same religious zeal towards the warrior way. Well, there is a there is a stroke of if we go back to the when they first take their helmets off. There's yeah. a line when she says the uh, children of the Watch are religious zealots that broke away from Mandalorian society. Their goal was to reestablish the ancient way. She looks down at the child. Oh yeah, stuff with the man. Like there's a there's a where she like specifically looks at the child. Well, I mean about the ancient ways. Of course, and she the looks at the child. Ancient ways were war with the Jedi. And what's funny though is that like, uh, does anybody remember that Bo Katan's met Yoda? <laughs> this is it. This is it. Bo Katan has met Yoda and staring down at that little uh, green nugget there. Like you can't tell me that she's not going. Oh, <laughs> that's a fantastic point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, don't believe everything you've heard uh, referring to Mandalore as a as a as a cursed world. And then, you know, he's like, "Well, that's not part of my plan." And and he reasserts his, you know, his mission to reunite uh, the child with the Jedi. And then she just lays it out for him like, "Hey man, what do you know about the Jedi?" Nothing. And that's yeah, I don't know anything. Well, that gives her a little bit of leverage because she's like, "Listen, I can I can help you, but before we do that, you've got to help me. And uh, she lays out her plan. And uh, her plan is to basically hijack a uh, Gozanti cruiser. So um, nice. Yeah. And Gozanti cruisers made their debut in Rebels. Cool little, so cool great. little. They're not, I don't know what they call them cruisers, but really they're, they're more like heavy freighter almost. You know, yeah, they, in, in, in rebels, they were, they were carrying uh, chicken walkers and they were carrying ties. Yeah. Four, four ties. Four ties or, yeah. Or two bombers. Yeah, exactly. Mm. This I, was just all weapons. They, they, they kind of talk about it. Yeah. They were kind of used uh, as like system patrol craft. Like you wouldn't, you couldn't deploy a garrison with them, but I mean, they were, no. they were big enough and they were robust enough that they could do like planetary defense or they could do system patrol and just, you know, act as a scout ship. They're quick too. They have three hyperdrive engines. Yeah. 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 And you can't tell me that the depiction of this thing is the gnarliest looking ship yet. I mean, I just love the, the translation from the smooth, smooth panel lines of the animation model to this like more chunky, 
mm-hmm. almost like the stuff you'd see very much looks like a practically built model, you know, with all the, oh, yeah. the kibble and the greeblies all over it, even though, you know, it's mostly just like, you know, uneven uh, panel depths, I guess, on the on the surface of the hull. That's certainly how you build that up. Yeah, it, no, it, it, it's perfect. And this part here too, when they're like surveying the Gozanti, yeah, and, and they pan back, and they're all on the 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 roof of the crest, the Razor Crest, yeah. And, and uh, Mando and and uh, Bo-Katan are talking in the background, and and the other two characters are like squatted and laying down. Yep, that was the most rebels thing I've seen yet. Oh yeah, very much. Now and that it, you mentioned that, actually, my favorite. If I pause that, like I want it to be my screenshot for my phone. Oh, That's cool. What, favorite visual i've gotten in two seasons yeah where they're just kind of lounging around and it's just like a rebels thing yeah like perfect like just like troops kind of like hey before we go out we're just going to review the plan but not in a formal way you know just kind of talk about it and it's it's it lends that nearly every mission that they the uh phoenix squadron goes on starts like that with a casual almost let's get up on let's get a look at what we're doing and in a very like ragtag this is we're on the fly here's our plan let's hack it out let's do it yeah it was my that was my favorite visual actually i've gotten into the whole thing and there's some been some really cool ones we blew up a great dragon so there's a couple of things on the in this sequence the leading up to the assault on the on the actual ship itself where i kind of they were kind of head scratchers for me one is the whole plan itself hinges on the fact that the Imperials are going to stay at a certain altitude and a certain speed until they've cleared the shipping lane. And I'm thinking well, that, for me, that lends like that. They're just customers. Yeah. Uh, like they, they have to adhere to the same, you know, you're coming in too hot. They got to adhere to the same rules. They yeah. Have the responders going like, they, you know, if they don't tow the line, they're not going to get service. I guess so. I mean, but, Maybe for me, it's because there's no consequence. Like they don't explain you got to stay at this speed at this altitude or what. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's a good point. And even later in the episode when, you know, the, the word is given, you know, go into orbit now. And he's like, sir, do it now. And there's no consequence. So I'm like, well, okay, I guess it's just sort of a neat, neat uh, writing trick to just make sure that we can get on the ship. But so for, it, it does lend itself to the kind of stupid plot point from Rise of Skywalker, where the the fleet couldn't deploy around the galaxy. Oh, I know. So yeah, it all cleared the atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. Every single one of them. Why is that? We're all gonna... crawling on repulsor lifts. Yes, the we're SDF just sitting there. The SDF one got up faster. I know. <laughs> nice, so true, right? And then the other thing is. So we have this cool, like, I love the scene of the four of them rocketing off, chasing this thing down. I mean, that just looks so awesome. Um, And the landing, the visual on that, like, I know we talked about it in the Marshall, like, the wire work and how how good it looked. But that paled in, in comparison to the four of them landing on the hull of this thing. And again, I don't know how much of that was practical versus CG, but like, to me, it was just... It was absolutely beautiful the way that they oh, did so that. Beautiful. Yeah. For me, there was a great action figure nod here because I don't know how many times I'd have a capital ship flying around, but there'd be stormtroopers standing on the top of it. Oh, neat. So that was that was such an action figure nod to me. Like, yeah, cool. like there needs to be figures on the outside of the ship. Well, that, that that was great, the little sentry guys. That's another thing that bothered me. Why? What reason are there stormtroopers on the outside of that ship? 
Is it pirates again? I guess. You know that reputation. In, of if the you planet, had maybe. to, if you had That's to give it to line. me in a single line, yeah, pirates again. Okay, so you know what? That totally clears that up for me. I guess I was just too thick to pull that one out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big episode. There's so much going on. I know. I know. Really like that part though. They clear the guys off the deck, and uh, there's this cool thing. I want to talk about. I'm gonna get ahead of myself, but I'm gonna talk about it now because it it plays out uh, two or three times to the episode. There's this. I don't know if I if I would call it Bo-Katan's theme, but there's a piece of music that plays every time that those three go into action. And it's such a contrast from the Mandalorian theme, which is like so organic and kind of woodwinded and that, right? It's so different. This is like this electronic, almost like a, like a dance beat, like, I just love that, how it just yeah, lends yeah, to the- Very mechanical sounding. Yeah, very uh, electronica. So uh, to me, that totally amped me up and I was right there like, oh yeah, we're going to get an action bit here. But if that's Bo-Katan's theme, I, I want more of that. That's so cool. That's yeah, real cool. Uh, so we bust into the ship with, and I love this, uh, a scomp link, like a handheld yeah. scomp link, which we've yeah. seen before. Uh, we've only really seen them on droids before, whether it's uh, R2, or... R2 or in the wrist of uh, uh, K2SO or those security droids. Cool to know that they were. there's a handheld version of that. Makes sense. You know, it's almost like a lock pick, a locksmith's mm. tools, I guess. But I digress. We We bust our way into the ship and holy running firefight. Run and gun. Yeah, but it's not... It's not the run and gun that we got from from the passenger yeah. where it's this like panic, you know, escape vibe. This is a deliberate, you know, we're on the assault more so than in, in uh, uh, the prisoner from season one yeah. where it was just droid security that they had to overcome. You, you really get the sense, too, that these guys, these other three are crack shots. Oh, they my are, God. Yeah. Especially but we, we just go back to where they defeat the brothers. Yeah. Uh, in the ambush in in the at the dockyard at night they 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 just it's like one shot kills there oh absolutely they, it was they, they explode as a squadron and they collapse back together as a squad like they're yeah they 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 fight together like yeah amazing i really i really got that right from the get go like like andy had said you know from the drop kick to even though the the perspective was much more condensed, you just got this sense of like, oh, they fight much differently than than Din Djarin does, and then to see them in these these hallway shots and the three of them, how it's a it's a concert of movements and it's all complementary, you know. It's uh, and noticeably, Din Djarin is like a step behind. Oh, very much so. You know, he's yeah. almost the support in this one. You know, not the. Like he doesn't, he's not keeping up with them. Yeah. Well, he's got his, uh, his, he's missing his rifle. Yeah. And he's, he's got his, it's like one blaster and he's holding it like, like a six shooter, if you will. Like yeah. almost like he's got low tech compared to these guys. You notice that the Axe Wove character has blasters in his wrist. Yeah. Like I did notice that. Earlier, yeah. And yeah. earlier when they did the, the first cavalry run. He's also carrying the same if not the same, a very similar model blaster to what we see Sabine uh, wield in Rebels has yes. that very distinctive uh, uh, profile with the uh, angle at the end of the barrel. So I think that's super cool. Um, super cool. Love the details. 
so there's this moment where we uh, we fight our way through, and and they make a they make a couple of jokes in this episode about stormtroopers not being able to shoot and uh, hit the side of a bantha couldn't hit the side of a bantha. But at the same time, though, I mean, hit the side of a Mandalorian in this one. Yeah, well, I I thought that maybe the show is kind of they've they've played the joke before with uh, Jason Sudeikis's uh, cameo as the scout trooper when they couldn't hit the piece of garbage on the ground, right? I mean, ha ha. <laughs> but by and large, these troopers, to my way of thinking, if they can't, you know, if they can't shoot for accuracy, they are certainly exceptional at suppression fire. Oh yeah. And then when they start handing out the heavy armaments and like, Oh, the uh, heavy, heavy, heavy shots there. I made a note of that, that they, uh, they switched up their E11s to uh, repeating blasters. Oh Yeah. And I think we saw those back in Rogue One. I think the, some of the shore troopers may have been armed with those. That's correct. But I like the idea that, you know, they actually like, oh, we need we need more firepower. <laughs> like that moment where it's like, is it pirates? It's pirates. Oh, my God. There's like at least 10 of them. And then the, the co-pilot says to the captain, uh, sir, it's only four life signs. <laughs> that's a great. That, yeah. It, it, that's great timing. And also, you know, like. And then if the guy in the back is panicking. Yeah, the panic. Straight. They're Mandalorians. Ah! And then the comlink cuts out. Funny moment too. They they fight their way back. And when you think about it in terms of like if you were boarding a ship and you had to clear it, I mean, you do. You've got to go from one end to the other. And uh, you know, they make the decision to clear the back end of the ship out first because that's where the cargo is. Funny moment though, where um I can't think of his name. Oh, this is where we were getting into that. Uh, you had mentioned offline, Hank, about who we thought the deck officer character was, and that's right. And I, I didn't think it was the Quarren fellow. I thought it was this Imperial officer. Yeah, it makes more sense. And in yeah. fact, you're absolutely correct. But they fight their way to the back end, and I mean, you can tell like he's not, he's not up for this fight before the door ever opens. You know, he's he's not, he's nervous, but the doors blow open. And on the first like laser or blaster bolt, he's like, close the door, close the door. He shoots once. He yep. actually, I watched it a few times. He, sh- he only shoots one. He, yep. he makes, takes one shot and then goes, oh, close oh. The door. <laughs> he's clearly not up for it. I think Andy, did you get the, uh, the deck officer is played by Kevin Dorf. Kevin Dorf. Noted for Brooklyn nine, nine and the office. Who was he? In? I've watched every episode of Brooklyn nine, nine. I'm going to have to go back and see who he was in that. It's like a minor character in Must the be. office. He's the guy that quits in an episode. He's just oh. calls and he's there and he quits. <laughs> it's kind of funny. But I just love his. Yeah, it's it's comedic, but he doesn't play it. He doesn't play it as comedy. He plays it straight because he's oh, yeah. legitimately scared. He's panicking. Yeah, I mean, and then of course they lock themselves in the cargo hold, and then calls up to the cockpit to tell the captain, "We've trapped them. You've trapped them where." In the cargo control area. Classic. Uh, what? <laughs> yeah, really. And and of course he even says that he double he does the double take. You've trapped them where? And I mean, no sooner does he say the cargo control area, and <laughs> they're vented out the back end of the ship. <laughs> Insert Wilhelm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I found that to be completely funny because you know. I thought, you know, back in the days of the playing the role playing game extensively, I thought I was the only one who ever vented people out. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. 
there's an awesome line where, uh, you know, after they, uh, the static breaks and they, you know, they've lost contact with everybody, you know, the, the co-pilot, he's like, uh, come in, come in. And Bo-Katan has a comm link and she's like, I'm here. And she says, uh, what does she say? She says, put some tea on. We'll be up in a minute. Yeah, we're coming up. <laughs> it's so good. That's such a great line. Like, yeah. Completely in control of the situation. I get why they cast. I mean, even going back to her initial casting back in uh, in the animation, I mean, not to say that she was typecast, but I mean, certainly Katie Sackhoff has sort of, you know, been subjected to the, to some typecasting that she plays these hard, hard ass female characters, you know, like Starbuck, you know, Starbuckian like characters, even her, her, um, her guest starring in the last, uh, Riddick movie was a similar character. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like her as, as Bo-Katan, but seeing her in live action, I can't help but go back and make the Starbuck analogy. And it's, it, doesn't take me out of it, but it's like, oh, I, I kind of hope that she would, you know, not do like a little less Starbuck and a little more of what we saw in the animated series. She delivers several lines of spot on, especially that little T line. Yeah. She sounds a lot more like the animated character with her helmet on too. Oh yeah. 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 Um, I, I just, I was just like, I got to get my wife some Mandalorian armor, bro. Nice. <laughs> So there's wow. a there's a there's a callback here where um you know the initial deal was not to uh I guess I kind of I goofed that she didn't present the mission as taking the ship she presented it as taking the weapons. Yeah. Yes. But now it's like we're taking the whole ship and uh, there's this callback moment it's very reminiscent of uh the uh, Lando Vader moment in Empire where you know you're changing the terms of the deal. I thought we were going to get the second line, actually. Yeah, so, really. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want my help finding the Jedi, you'll help me take this ship, is her, her answer. Yeah, and it shows you again that everybody's living in a bargaining world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so now, of course, now we've got, to, we've got to fight our way up to the front of the ship. And I find it funny at this point, you know, it's like back in season one when, uh, when Grief Karga flips sides and and he decides that he's actually going to help the Mandalorian and they come up with that, you know, harebrained plan to go back into town. And he's like, well, how many stormtroopers are there? And he's like, Oh, maybe a squad, you know, and it's, and it, the town is like overrun with troopers mm-hmm. and it's the same thing in this episode. And he's like, well, how many? And she's like, Oh, maybe a squad. You, there's way more than a squad's worth of troops on this ship. Early on in the first uh, season two, the how many stormtroopers? Uh, only four, and then they're turned. Oh yeah, 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 ten. <laughs> yeah, it's a running gag. Yeah, abs- it's absolutely a running gag. Love the. Uh, sorry, this is I guess kind of taking a step back, but I love the uh, stormtrooper across the windshield gag. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so good. Yeah. So now the the ship captain. Uh, I got this one. Uh, Titus Titus Welliver. Hmm who's only listed as the captain. He doesn't really have a name. Also of Deadwood fame. Yes. um, At this point realizes he's in trouble. And so he puts in a a distress call to none other than Moff Gideon. And uh, Moff Gideon says, you know, he actually makes that line. Are these the same pirates? 
and they say that they believe so. So I guess that lends some credibility or, or some credence to... They've been taking stuff back for a while. They've been operating there for a while. And that was a big question I had. Like, it ties into that, how did how did they know to follow him? And, you know, how long have they been there? Operating very much like the Rebels did in the early days. Yeah, I guess so. Well, this is the thing. I mean, if they if they took the ship, I guess it's really inconsequential in the grand scheme of the things. But it's like, did they not have their own ship to get there in the first place? Did they, did they buy passage? You know, did they all wear black hooded robes over top of their armor to, to conceal their armor? Like Sasha Banks. Maybe they're at the point though. They've taken enough stuff. They knew like they need that freighter. It's entirely possible. You can't tell me that they're not going to use the ship in some way, shape or form. And I mean, the rebellion is just as guilty of doing the same thing. You know, they, uh, in rebels, they steal what, um, I can't think of the name of the, the ship. Essentially it's an aircraft carrier. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. The fine line between freedom fighter and terrorist. Isn't it though? So the uh the moth basically, you know, asks the captain, you know, how much have you lost? And the captain reports that uh, you know, virtually the whole ship has been taken except us in the cockpit. And uh he tells him that, you know, uh support is not an option and give leaves him with this you know what to do line, mm. which is punctuated with this kind of final Long live the empire. It's that's such a good. I, I I don't know where I've seen that reference before. I don't think I've found it before, but that's it's such a good line. It's simple. It makes sense. Yeah. Great. There's a to me. There's almost a sarcasm the way that the line is delivered. Like long live the empire. Like you're fucked. You know. You know you are, and this is what you're resolved. You're resigned to. So get on with it. You know. It's fantastic. Uh, so Gideon certainly doesn't pull punches. No, no, he doesn't. Um, and neither does the captain in this case, as he uh, draws his blaster and uh, wastes the the pilot and the co-pilot. And they, pers- they know it's coming too, actually. Well, yeah, they're, you they're do. You, nervous about the, yeah. the conversation. You got to wonder what it's like being a young uh, imperial officer in in this time frame where everything. You're is either going to so... die or you're going to be a general in oh. five minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Admiral Piet. Exactly. Uh, takes the Gozanti and throws it into a suicide dive. Must have had the comms turned off because they didn't tell him he was coming in too hot. <laughs> no, they did Was there no... Good point. No. Hmm. Yeah, I guess so. That's funny. So then there's this whole, again, the run and gun thing where we've now turned our attention to, we've got to get into the, uh, into the cockpit. And this is where, like, the stormtroopers are now, you know wielding their I guess their light repeating blasters. One guy though is definitely carrying the heavy blaster from the what we see the sand people uh, the sand troopers carry in uh, a new hope. But oh, yeah. uh, like they are totally suppressed and they're they're pinned down. And again, I think you know, I can't decide if this is a, a character development thing for him or just you know, somebody who's as a bounty hunter who's self-sufficient, who's probably used to working alone, I i mean, there's – it's almost – like it's so reckless what he does when he takes those detonators off of his belt, you know, yells, cover me, and then charges into the fray, you know. And if there was ever any doubt about, uh, you know, the, the gag about getting shot every episode, like this makes up for every time that he's missed one. Oh, for sure. Cause he, I mean, I stopped counting at six or seven shots, you know, yeah, he does. And it's not a case of he dives to the floor. He's dropped. 
Oh, yeah. Um, tosses the detonators into the doorway and boom, takes out the troopers. But amazingly, yeah. recovers almost immediately. <laughs> the Ascar is hell of a shit. I guess those, so. Those heavy blasters are DL-19s, by the way. As, okay, cool. I guess I'm thinking of the one that the the one blaster that looks like the, the German... Oh, it's the one that's based on the German machine gun. It's a World War II gun. I can't think of it. But anyway, you know the one I'm talking about. I do, yeah. Force our way into the cockpit mm-hmm. and uh, immediately Din Djarin and uh, Koska uh, hit head right to the flight controls and start trying to pull the, pull the Gozanti out of the, uh, the nosedive while Axe kind of just stands in the doorway. And uh, then we have this, you know... The um, good lord, I'm tripping on my own tongue. Bo-Katan and the captain have that moment in the corner where they they pull him aside, and she's she wants info. Oh my god, yeah, and she's I mean the, the uh, gauntlet played out. Yeah, really credible in in Saber cyclone style. In the, yeah, super credible in how angry she she plays that moment. Like, where is it, or where is he? Or well, where does is it? He still have does it? he still have it? Yeah, exactly. He's not sure, but right. That, yeah, his line in, in back is is very telling too. If you're asking that question, you, you already, already know. know. Yeah. So I mean, that just makes me like we know that it's very suggestive that there's going to be a uh, a confrontation between her and him. It's true. It, it's very true. And if we if there was any other questions about you know like certainly uh, Ahsoka may still have lightsabers but there's a interesting point my wife brought up is that sabine if sabine does show up in in this show and it's very likely that it could happen sabine has ezra's lightsaber that's right and so there could be we could be headed towards some lightsaber duels here and she does have some rudimentary training from kanan yeah absolutely she's i i would i would almost put her force sensitive it's entirely possible we have this period of about uh well, it's been like five years, right? So, you know, we don't know what Ahsoka and Sabine did, uh, have been doing in the in the interim when they the went off to search for Ezra. In the epilogue to, uh, that takes place after Return of the Jedi and Rebels, right. where Ezra leaves a message for everyone. And the message for, for Sabine is, I'm counting on you. That's right. And she even, she's like been told this before because she, she says, you're counting me on me. I know. I don't know what that means. But I think it actually might mean that Ahsoka is going to train her and that he's counting on her to, to carry on forward. I never even considered that, to be honest. Yes, sir. I, I took it more from the perspective of like Sabine was a quasi romantic interest for him, even though they never played it out as much as they could have towards the end. It, it, they started developing that like there's more than they're just good buddies. And I thought, you know, I'm counting on you was a nod to you'll come get me. Oh, that's possible. That's a, that's possible way to interpret it. Yeah. I, I thought so anyway, but again, maybe that's just me not looking deep enough or, uh, no, it's nice that we have two different angles on that one. Yeah. I just thought it was the romantic connection speaking through where like, you know, there's more, there's more to what we have and I'm counting on you to come get me so that we can explore that later. See, except for the message there, I know we're way off track now, but except for the message that Ezra leaves leading you to believe that there's some way for them to go get him. Yeah. Him and Thrawn leap through hyperspace without a windshield. That's right, because the uh, space whales have punctured it. I'm saying they're dead. It's entirely, yeah, yeah. But is anybody really ever dead in Star Wars now? (laughs) That's a true story. Yeah. 
True story. Yeah. You might get you might get Maul and the Mandalorian with robotic arms. Work <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it. Interesting sort of uh, turn of events in this one. It reminded me of an old, uh, old-timey spy thriller movie mm. where, uh, you know, you've got the villain on the ropes and, you know, you're, you're about to make him divulge his evil plan. And it's almost that you, you can almost hear, like, the henchman laugh <laughs> as they bite down on the cyanide capsule. Oh, and he says the classic line, I'm more afraid of my boss than I am of you. Yeah, she's like, he says, you may let me live, but he won't. Certainly. And then does the big gnash down with his teeth. But and there's a nod to the uh, Emperor's Force Lightning because his skull. Oh, the glowing. Purple, almost Force Lightnings. Fantastic. I, I put it in my notes as some kind of quasi electrocution, whether it was a, a capsule in his mouth or built into his, his into his dental work. But yeah, in some the kind of audio it's called a suicide. So I'd have to look it up again. It's called a suicide something. Sure. But essentially, you know, sends enough electricity, I'm assuming, to his brain to, to kill him. Mm. We managed to pull the um, pull the Gozanti out of the suicide dive, kind of last minute thing, and really cool uh, action shot of the of the ship skimming the water and then and then coming out of the dive and and gaining altitude again. Din really is a hell of a pilot. I mean, we've seen him do some crazy stuff. Well, you have to wonder that if he didn't have Koska in the other chair, would he have been able to do it on his own? No, you know? it's true. It seems, yeah. No, and even frog lady in the, uh, initial. Exactly. Like playing. holding yeah. the, uh, Here, hold this. <laughs> yeah. Holding the, uh, I don't know, throttle or one of the controls back. Interesting contrast though, for her too, where her attention is split between helping him and making sure that the brood container does not topple over and, and spill or break. Well, it's certainly reinforcing the, the parenting theme. Yeah. 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 And it, I think that's amazing. It's strong. Keep it up. So at this point, the Bo-Katan and crew are about to take off with the ship. And, uh, you know, again, going back into that, you know, this is where they have that moment where we've now challenged uh, the Mandalorians. Uh, basically, his entire way of life has been challenged uh, twice now in the episode and is yeah. about to get challenged that third time, you know, where this is where she says that that line about, you know, there's a place for you and your bravery will not be forgotten. Cause she says, you sure you won't come with us? And again, he's like, no, I've got stuff I've got to do. Okay. Well, your bravery won't be forgiven. And this is the, the counterpoint where uh, she leads with, this is the way, but the way that, again, the way that she says it is this suggestive way. Mm. And I, I mean, I know she's saying this is the way, but in my mind, I'm hearing there is another way. And she's just left. She's just opened that door and all he's got to do is step through it now. It's a cool interpretation. Certainly she gives him all the information that he needs to seemingly do the next step in his quest. Right. Even uh, naming our uh, our heroine. That's right. So, I mean, what does she, she tells him. She uh, says, go to the city of Caledon on the forest planet of Corvus and find Ahsoka Tano. Yeah. So that's a huge, huge name drop. I mean, I mean, I think all of us as, uh, as fans of the animation, we've been, we've been clamoring for this for, years now you know what would uh, a live action ahsoka tano uh, not only look like but how would they be characterized and now there's no doubt in anybody's mind that we're going to get that uh in some some shape she's, or form she's 100 percent the best character that's uh considered periphery oh yeah totally in my opinion the best character the most well-rounded she has the best arc she's tragic she's 
a, a gifted combatant. She's she's morally uh, true. Uh, yeah, she's a she's a fantastic character, and especially Lauren says it all the time. If she had Sabine Wren and Ahsoka Tano when she was a little girl, yeah, uh, her life would have been a lot different. Oh, cool! That's so cool to have that connection with those characters. I mean, even even Dave Filoni, um, who created that character, you know, part of the reason for bringing her back for Clone Wars was she was so unresolved. Um, sorry, bring her back for Rebels was because she, her arc was so unresolved at the end of Clone Wars. And I mean, how do you how do you just let that character go when there's so much more to say about her, when she has so much more uh, to do uh, to Certainly. advance the story? He must have had tears in his eyes. Doing oh, the, my the God. Yeah. After I, such a big break to finally give that, at least that part of that chapter of her some closure, because that was so powerful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think, what did I say in my notes here? Oh, yeah, uh... She tells Din his bravery will not be forgotten, speaks the Mando Creed, this is the way, and Mando answers in kind. It's important. This is important because it shows an acknowledgement on Din Djarin's part to the truth that Bo-Katan had told him earlier. I think as the show progresses, he will eventually sway towards the Night Owls and renounce the Children of the Watch, especially when uh, he gets more guidance from a character like Ahsoka. His armor could use some paint. Oh, it totally could use some paint. And then we get to have one more visit with uh, Frog Mom and Frog Dad. Fantastic. We kind of skipped over where he dropped him off. Oh, we did. We did. We gloss. Oh, we did gloss over that. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. There's a, actually there's an important piece of dialogue there. I think um, there is. He tells him to to mind his manners, behave, and you know what I'm talking. about. You know about, what I'm talking about. Suggesting that Mando thinks that the child understands him. Yeah. And I thought, okay, it could be like when I every morning before I go to work, my wife leaves before I do. So the last thing I do before I shut the door for the day is I tell my dog to be a good girl. Of course. But it could be like that. Yeah. But I think it's deeper. He, you know, he literally says in the inn to the bartender, uh, I'd like a bowl of chowder for my friend. For my friend. Yeah. Yeah. So. I think it leans into what we were talking about last week about, you know, his, uh, his advancement in terms of, we've seen advancement in his language ability. So certainly this connects it with the, uh, the cognitive side of things. Like he is a more developed character now. It makes sense from a from a creator's standpoint that you would introduce him at a at a a point with which he's going to make a dramatic shift quickly. Yep. You wouldn't you you know if you introduced him two years ago, we'd have to wait four years for him to talk. No, exactly. If you introduce him two years from now, we'd we'd miss that transition. So it's probably very deft on the on the part of the creators. I think it you know adding to that, you know contrasting to how. Uh, pervasive that the joke was about him getting into the eggs and even after being told no he does it anyway and even in the final shot of the of the passenger where he pops an egg out of his robe and shoves it in his mouth like haha I did it anyway mm-hmm. you know he's proven his capacity to be mischievous right but in, I think he evolves in this episode absolutely you know look at the it's almost like he was sharing in that tender moment with the offspring, with the parents. He yeah. was there at the moment of birth, and there may actually have been some sort of recognition about life there. It well, was food before, but now it's life. Yeah. There's a close-up on the egg, and you see inside that egg, it's now little frog dude. Yeah, and then it busts open, and it's Deadpool. And <laughs> yeah. look, it's not, they almost give him a look of hunger in the last episode when he's peering through the glass, and this is a look of joy. Yeah, it's, 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 it's so different. Moment. In the concept art at the end, he's actually cradling the thing in his, his lap. Oh, I missed that part. Yeah. 
I got to start watching these credits more closely because I just kind of, by the time I get to the end of the episode and I'm like, I just want to watch it again. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's true. I watched this one I pretty much nonstop. I had to take a break and just put on something. I think I've watched a couple episodes of Family Guy to just sort of like, uh, almost like cleanse your brain water when you're eating sushi yeah. cleanse your palate. But I, I woke up this morning at like eight o'clock and started watching it again. And I was watching it at 1130 quarter to 12 when you called yeah <laughs> this I, was a highly watchable episode oh totally i mean you've got a 30 30 just over 30 minutes of so much jam packed in there and it's not just i found this one had less i mean there was certainly a fair share of like visual cues and and callbacks and stuff but like holy plot advancement batman right and nuanced too so they, they've dropped they've they've like listened to us they've dangled so many things that i we, know they're like our brains our mouths are watering with with the potential of what they've dropped here i guess we should probably just let's just finish out the uh the the episode itself and then let's mm. let's talk about sort of implications and then where it's going picks up the child cool little nod though that you, did you notice like how much time do we think passed over the course of this episode? One day? Maybe. Maybe two. The maybe. growth rate between tadpole to tadpole in a bowl with legs mm-hmm. overnight. So yeah, absolutely. Apparently frog couples uh, species grows very quickly. And uh, the sort of a point that only one hatched, which is yeah. the, the reason for the, uh, the needing so many. I I guess so. I never put that together that there was only in one nature, viable. Lauren made this point too. In nature, very few they lay hundreds, clutches of hundreds of eggs because one or two make it. Yeah, I guess so. It's, it's evolutionary that you lay so many eggs. We've seen that with with turtles. I know it's not exactly the same thing, but we watched Kim and I watched on the side of the road one day. We watched a snapping turtle. We counted lay uh, in excess of like fifty eggs, but mm-hmm. most of them end up as food. It's an know? evolutionary trait. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. You're not going to progress if you don't do that, and they've they've evolved to do that. It's kind of a neat, actually, a little deep nod there, actually. Well, the, yeah. I guess the principle is the same, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, um, success by numbers, really. And it lends gravitas to the fact that she's protecting these eggs. Yeah. You know, because because yeah, only one might might make it. So going on to the egg thing, you know, the amount of backlash that's come up in the last week, and I, we've all read about it. Lots of opinions online. About the um, the implications of genocide. Yeah, the implications of that and the morality of the child. And a lot of people were upset thinking that, you know, the child is a sentient creature and should have known better. And I, and I disagreed with that because I think we yeah. dis- we'd established that intellectually he's 18 months old. How do you, how do you put an adult sense of morality on that? Can't fault yeah, a child I, for being I, hungry. I've had this sort of not an argument with a discussion with my wife where she skews him quite older in terms of some of his stuff. Like she's saying that an 18 month old doesn't unscrew a knob from a console and start playing with it. Mm, I would argue that that's not entirely impossible. Not. And so would I. And so would I. But she, and there are, there is a sect of fandom out there that, that skews him a little older in terms of his development. Um, Because at 50 and if Yoda's 800, uh, you know, 50 is a significant chunk. It is. Of, of that uh so you know uh but i i agree with you uh, in terms of that and i i also it was one of the reasons that i shifted him morally from 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 good good to yeah. sort of a, a almost chaotic neutral not chaotic but chaotic good 
not shifting in his alignment in terms of his goodness, but shifting in in his alignment in terms of uh, being more of a, t a chance taker. He is he's picking up. I mean, Din, Din Djarin does a lot of killing. That's right. Right. He does. He, and I mean, and he, he is the moral compass and, and, and the child is going to learn from that. And if it's as innocuous as stabbing a squid in a bowl with a with a thing yep. or or blowing up, uh, you know, uh, 40 stormtroopers with with uh, singing birds just to just to get out of a, a tight situation, that the child is going to absorb this morality for sure. But at this point, I think he's he's it's fairly safe to assume that he's a normal developing child. And I think very, so very neutral stance and that yeah. statement throws back to last episode where he fires off the jetpack and the kid looks at him he's like what <laughs> yeah 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 like, well, it just... there's a scene where he closes the pram and uh because he's about to fire the whistling birds in that yep. first episode that's right and, and that's, a, that's one of lauren's arguments that uh that he's older like uh, an 18 month old wouldn't recognize that's about to happen i don't know it's the whole uh touch the hot burner yeah it's semantics yeah it's neat it's, it's neat that we're that we're getting there with that. Yeah. If you're scared, press the button. Again, it's a, I guess it really just boils down to nature versus nurture and that whole, you know, you may not be intentionally trying to teach your kids uh, certain behaviors, but they will pick it up just on, based on observation. At the end of the day, we're anthropomorphizing a puppet. <laughs> no. Oh, so that's <laughs> great segue though. Like we've, we've talked extensively about how much you can get out of a, a faceless character, how much a mask can emote, but like, holy cow, talk about what you can get out of this puppet, which this animatronic device, which is, I mean, yes, it's supposed to be able to do all these things, but it is doing it in spades. I've never said this out loud. I mean, I said it to my wife, but doesn't he, doesn't he remind you as if they might, they might've shaved down gizmo? from gremlins well there and is a it's like a, it's 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 like they picked the best elements of the cutest things in the 90s or the 80s or the 80s and and the, it's an amalgam of <laughs> yeah. of you know it's it's got a furby connotation to it yeah it's got a, i heard in an interview uh and i probably read it in an interview with with john Favreau that they some of the early versions of this were so cute that they had to dial it back oh wow that it was distractingly cute yeah they had to like, no, we need, we need to bring it way back or nobody else is going to do anything to fall right. with this character. So finally we get, uh, we pick up the child, we head back over to the dock and, uh, Mando, uh, is once again met by a Boston whaler longshoreman and, uh, he's just standing there looking at the razor crest and it is literally tied together with baler wire and fish netting. And he's like, it gave you a thousand credits and this is the best you could do. It and just, he just like, holds up the thing here, sign here. Yeah, sign here. <laughs> so good. And it, it now it's starting to look more like his armor used to look because it's got oh yellow my God, yeah. and pink and green and it's it's starting to look more like his armor used to look. It's very, wow. very piecemeal. You know, I I almost that's one of the things sort of I'm questioning sort of going forward is like it's still like a rickety bucket of bolts ready to fly apart at any second. Are we going to get an overhaul anytime soon? Like he's, he's paying Pelly's rent. <laughs> I guess so. Is he going to back Tatooine? He's going to backtrack. He's going to have to bring her on board to keep up with this. Madness. Yeah. So we get one more, one more little, uh, it's a, I guess it's a bit of a, a tension piece, but then it's broken with a little bit of comedy where, you know, as we're pulling away and he's saying, Hey, I finally know where to take you. I know where we're going. And 
he's cursing, you know, I'm on calamari as he's reaching between the lines to operate the the controls. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I talked to Andy about this and we both agree that that may be a baby mama core crawling up the line. No, no, yeah, we don't see enough of the big one, but it it's, it it does have the mouth in the correct location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If it's I had the squid from the from the soup, it's definitely not that. Um, but again, so you have this moment, the the thing, which for all intents and purposes, I'm just going to call it a baby mama core Call, mm-hmm. climbs up the line, and it's this baby moment, core. the baby core. Yeah, is it going to eat him or not? And uh, you know, space dad at the last second. Snatches it midair and yeah, I assume he crushes it or whatever, but you know, and then we have the comedic moment where he's eating it, right? So he finally, we finally get to see him, you know, cause that was like, Hey, I'll get you something to eat from the beginning hungry. of the episode. And he doesn't, we don't see him eat anything until now <laughs> in the last seconds of the episode. It's pretty great. And that's a quick flip though, right? Cause the mama core eats him and yeah. now he's eating the mama core. Yeah. So, I mean, is that a little... Is that a little uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge? And again, just like the uh, the innkeep, hey, was that baby mama core stowing away or was it planted there? <laughs> mm. I guess we'll never know. Could have come aboard when they sunk the first time, but. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get the. Uh, it seems fishy. It does seem, <laughs> it does seem fishy. But I don't know. Razorcrest jaunts off into hyperspace, leaving a panel behind. Love you it. Know, so, just spinning in space. There. Yeah. I love the, how they hold on that for a second. Like, That's fantastic. Well, the whole takeoff is like the whole thing is shaking and he's like, it's like, going to be a bumpy ride. Again, like thinking this thing's going to fly apart at any second. Like, that. This is uh, Bryce Dallas Howard's second episode. And yes. Really good at action, man. You yeah, the raider. She had the raider in the in the night, and all the villagers fighting in that. That's right. Episode. She's super good at directing action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess so. That's it. That's the episode. Uh, not in a nutshell, because I think we were at our longest recording session yet. But I can't. I can't end the show without without putting in some speculation and talking about where mm-hmm. we might be going. And I just want to lead off with like. Whether there's a filler episode in between, we know that we're going to get to Corvus and we know we're going to, we're going to meet Ahsoka because Bo-Katan says, tell her, you know, Bo-Katan sent you. But my mind automatically goes to the periphery of who else can we meet? Because I don't think we're going to, I don't think Ahsoka's hiding out alone. I think if we, if we meet Ahsoka, we're going to get at least one more character. And I'm not sure I have three three possibilities and it could be one or it could be all of them. Mm. The first obvious one, Sabine, because you think Sabine is going to be very much aware of and very much paying attention to what's going on with her culture through the galaxy. The second one is Rex. Oh yeah. Because of the connection, Ahsoka and Rex and Rex fought in the battle of Endor. So, you know, there's, there's no reason why, you know, he wouldn't be hiding out with her or helping her hide out, stay concealed from whatever's going on. Very true. And the third one, now I don't remember, did he survive? Uh, Callus. Callus goes off to the Zeb's people's new homeworld. Right. Stays there to help them rebuild. Is there a chance that Callus, as an ex-Imperial will make an appearance in the Mandalorian? Oh, it's, he's a, he's a really good character to, 
it uh you know it somebody who flipped so good that it made huck switching in the in the last movie just so silly i know it was dumb so it was like they were drawing from now you're now you're ripping off your own selves like for yeah me, that was a little bit cheese uh callus is a great character because i i never you know i for the first two seasons you don't really get that he's he's pulling strings on no. the other side at no, all. I don't think that they wrote him that way from the, I think they wrote him straight for the first, for those two seasons that he Probably was he commits. I mean, and he's a broken soldier too. Right? Yeah. Like he commits atrocities on Zeb's whole world. That's right. So, so I mean, if there's enough, if there's enough to drag, you know, like to get the crew back together, does he mm-hmm. come with it? Uh, I, I could, I could see chopper showing up in, in an easy, uh, a periphery legacy character uh and and i just assume not only from what we saw in rogue one but dipping back into star wars squadrons that you know in rogue one uh chopper is is visible along with the uh, the ghost and we it's get true. that that page for general Sindula. yeah and yeah he's and probably with hera i sure. just assume that chopper is with hera wherever she's mm-hmm. at and we know she's around because she's on project starhawk I would do a Jason Sindula show. Oh yeah. 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 Funny. You should mention that because there's, you know, more potential for, you know, another quasi Jedi like character who could, you know, essentially, uh, you know, keep the flame burning. 100% and a perfect character, like at the right age to pop up in a show like this. I guess so. Yeah. Because I mean, he's probably like maybe 13 or 14 at this point. That's right. Yeah. Not too far off from where Luke was when he hooked up with uh, Obi Wan. Mm. Yeah, I don't. Do you think there's anything to the fact that the planet Corvus is the same uh, title of the the uh, the Raider class Corvette? The Raider class Corvette from the Battlefront Two game, the one that uh, inevitably Iden Versio steals and 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 commandeers and becomes part a rebel ship. I'm inclined. My my initial grabbing names from the hat. My initial thought on that is it's a throwaway. I don't think it's going to be connected. I did, you know, uh, read a few things and I watched a couple of videos and one of the videos I watched, the IGN uh, review of the episode actually made that same connection on the Corvus. And, you know, there, the, one of the possibilities was that it presents a way for Ahsoka to meet Din Djarin on her terms as opposed to his Right. Instead mm-hmm. of instead of no, giving true. say Corvus, but it let's assume that Corvus is the Raider class Corvette. Well then that that gives her the upper hand because it's a ship and not a planet. And so when Din Jern shows up in system, it gives her the opportunity to get the jump on him. There's a theme too, every time he meets a contact, nothing nothing on the other end ever works out exactly the way that the person is sitting. No. So there's also that running theme of oh, almost everybody's trying to one up every other character in the show. But again, for a show that's based around lone wolf bounty hunter who's, you know, seat of your pants, buy your wits, you know, isn't that kind of pervasive and, you know, as a as a theme? Oh, absolutely. I had said at one previous episode that you didn't need to be a Star Wars fan to enjoy this. And now I don't know if uh, it's so deep. I'm, I'm sure you can still enjoy it, but it might not be uh, true anymore. It might not be true anymore. I mean, they're taking some deep turns and. uh I don't know if the casual viewer will, I, I encourage the casual viewer. If there are any of you listening to us to, to dive into those other two series we've been talking about, 
because uh, this this is certainly the, the the final act in a trilogy. Very much so. I I posted um, yesterday. I put up a little teaser for today's show uh, with some photographs, and then and I shared that over to my own personal social media. And uh, we got a comment from uh, a former colleague of mine who's a big Star Wars fan. Like, I mean big. Like, he named his son Harrison. Nice. Like, he's a huge Star Wars fan. And he was completely disenchanted with what was going on to the point where he said, I've had enough. I'm not going to watch anymore. Like, referring to, you know, Bo-Katan as a wannabe. You know, and I'm like, I'm really sorry you feel that way. But if you're not a fan of the... I said, this episode really leans into the lore that was established in the the two animated series. And I said, if you, if you have Oh, he's recently disgruntled. Like yesterday. Whoa. Yeah. Like he literally watched the episode and said, I'm done. You know, like he, he thought Bo-Katan was a wannabe and that, you know, Din Djarin wasn't aggressive enough with her. And I don't think he really understood the nuance of who she uh-huh. is and what she represents in the bigger Star Wars universe. And that's fine. I mean, that's part of that's part of what our show is really about when we talk about, you know, fandom power, like your fandom, it's it's your it's your thing, right? I I said, you know, really if you can if you can handle it, you should check out both of those series. And I said, and if you can't, because there's a lot to digest, at the very least, just go back and watch the episodes in Clone Wars and Rebels that relate to the Darksaber because that there's would help YouTube. Uh, summary video. Yeah, I mean, it would yeah. so help to fill in those those gaps because I think I it, bad this... if he's such a big fan, he's doing himself a disservice by not having that content. I thought you meant that he he was out having seen that other content. And was no, still no, I mean like this was his reaction to oh, this episode, which I was yeah, like, oh, yeah, you know what? There's a good chance that uh, he would probably do that too. Anyway, that's kind of my thoughts on uh, going forward. Uh, Andy, what about you? You got anything? Uh, do you think is going to go on? Nothing that hasn't already been covered. No. Okay. How about you, Hank? Uh, so from the trailer, since we've been getting successive images of yeah. what's going on, I think that we may uh, have another episode before we get to Corvus, and I think it may be the uh, that rocky yeah uh, world from uh, from from the trailer where there are the speeder bikes and the uh, the new ties. And certainly uh, we've seen uh, live action footage of Gideon. I'm not sure if that was from old footage or not, but I think we might get uh, uh, him uh, coming to, to head with yeah. the uh, Empire first. Sure. And then maybe have to limp for it. He, um, he does repeatedly need help. <laughs> he sure does. In a, in a, in a completely honest way. Um, I'm going to cross my fingers for Ahsoka next episode. Yep. Uh, but I think that we're going to we're going to have to wait a little longer. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that the uh, the rocky uh, environment that we the rocky set piece that we see in the trailer is uh, back to Navarro. I yeah I, I tend to agree actually. Yeah, I mean it'd be uh, interesting. We've also seen the, those characters in the. That's right. Uh, the, the shot of uh, uh, Grief right. Cargo in his new uh, outfit uh, alongside with Cara Dune and and they're clearly hanging out together. I assume that they're still on Navarro. I don't, I can't see why Carl Weathers character would, would leave, especially if you know, the, the immediacy of the Imperial threat has now been dealt with. Certainly. You know? And in those scenes, the child is nowhere to be found. And we know that sometimes he leaves him on the ship. And sometimes he leaves That's him right. the babysitter. There's yeah. a running theme too, but 
I don't think a more tragic thing could happen to that character than to actually lose the child and then have to be operating from a place of offense rather than defense. Yeah. I think that would be a neat turn. And I think you might see that this season. It's entirely possible, especially when you start adding in these other, uh, we'll call them legacy characters that the, that are making the leap from animation into live action. I mean, you know, we're going to have to put a, put the gang together. And if we're going to do it, you know, we get Ahsoka. I mean, if we're going to get Ahsoka, I'm hoping like, I'm really at this point, I'm really, really hoping that we can get Tamura to do Rex. I would love to see Rex visualized as a live action character, 100%. you know, get, get the band back together kind of thing. Oh, and yeah. you know, uh, you know, Bo-Katan for the cherry on top. <laughs> it, it, it's true. It, uh, there are endless possibilities and I, I'm, I, I feel really comfortable with who's at the helm and, yep. uh, and I, I feel strongly that they understand that fans are fans are fans of this yeah, and, and that they do have a deep box to draw from and they, they so far so good, man. Oh my God. Yeah. Mm. So I guess, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm just, uh, I'm going to go one more time and just, uh, again, suggest that, uh, we're going to see a, a morality, not a morality, but a, an ideological shift in uh, in the main character himself. And uh, I, I reassert that uh, at some point of his own volition, the helmet will come off. My favorite episode so far out of all 11. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Um, you know, I love the marshal. I was on the fence with the, uh, with the passenger until successive viewings, at which case I, uh, I turned my turned a leaf over on that and said, "No, no, I really like it for its its development pieces." And then this episode comes along and just blows blows it out of the water. Um, so much action, so much lore, but doesn't ignore the character development that came before it, and even maybe adds a little more. Mm. Katie Sackoff, marry me. <laughs> All right, guys, I think that's it for me. And uh, I hope everybody's enjoying the show. Stay with us. We've got uh, five more weeks to go. And uh, it's been a wild ride so far. So that's it, guys. Until next week, may the force be with you. And this is the way. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening to Fandom Power. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll be talking about another one of your favorite fandoms. Fandom Power is a Sawcast production. Have you ever wanted to start a podcast, but you didn't know where to begin? Maybe you'd like to try podcasting without having to invest in any recording equipment. Do you have an idea for a show, but you're not sure how to develop it? 
Let Sawcast Productions take care of all of that so you can focus on what it is you want to say. Sawcast Productions offers podcasting solutions ranging from recording and basic editing to fully produced episodes complete with all the audio embellishments of a broadcast quality show. When your show is ready, Sawcast Productions can distribute it too. Contact us online today. So, what do you want to say?